Hello, you're listening to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where we talk about two movies randomly selected from a list of over 1,700. Our movies this week are Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas from 1998 from director Terry Gilliam and Hellfest from 2018, the amusement park set slasher film that isn't Toby Hooper's The Fun House. And uh, I am your host, Patrick, and I am joined this time by a special guest. My name is John Brick. Hello. I'm a PhD candidate at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm about, I looked at the calendar today and gave myself a, just a, a small heart attack because I'm about five and a half weeks away from defending my doctoral dissertation. Uh, at the centerpiece of which is a comprehensive annotated variorum of Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which uh, presumably is why I'm here today. Yes, well, I mean, it has something to do with that. But uh, <laughs> I remember years ago, you you had talked about wanting to like record a commentary track on, on the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas movie because you had so much to say about like each and every scene. <laughs> throughout we won't quite be doing that today but you know i'm interested in hearing what you had to say about it this is one of the at least so far it's been fairly rare this is one of the movies that i hadn't seen before doing it for this podcast so and i i mean i'll just be perfectly honest i'm not 100 percent sure what i think about this movie yet it's it's still kind of settling in i did read the book and i don't remember much about the book i read that probably five years ago now Probably on your recommendation, but yeah, I, uh, I remember the bathtub scene, which is in the movie. But I remember that in the book, and that's like all I remember about the book. But other than the famous opening sentence, of course. Yeah, it's a it's a weird film, partially because the source material is really weird in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Like you go to into a bookstore and you could find a copy of Fear and Loathing in current events. You could find it in fiction. You could find it in nonfiction. You can find it in journalism. You probably won't find it in the kids section, yeah. but yeah, you yeah, never know, fair. right? There's it's Some weirdos it, out there. Well, for sure, for sure. It was originally published in uh, November 1971 in two parts in Rolling Stone magazine. Mm-hmm. And it it was it, it kind of it's the, the genesis of the original text came out of Thompson basically doing an uh, kind of a journalistic investigation of the the death of a journalist named Ruben Salazar who got his head blown off by a tear gas canister during uh, the, the Brown Power riots in California. He um, he was in touch with a a leader at the time, Oscar Acosta, and it was it was I mean it was a pretty tense environment, right? They this was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's basically investigating the cops, and as we all know, cops just love being investigated by third parties. Um, and so it was. Right. So there was that. Also, Thompson was Thompson was white. I mean, he was he was he kind of a, kind of a self self proclaimed sort of elevated hillbilly out of <laughs> um, Louisville, Kentucky. And so okay. he, the, the 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 people who were who were um, you know working with the kind of the Chicano movement, the the Brown Power, La Raza, all that activity in that area really didn't take kindly to one of their their leaders, Oscar Acosta, hanging around this you know weird white dude. Yeah. So there was a lot of a lot of tension from a lot Especially of people. Especially if quarters. he's wearing that hat all the time too. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Mumbling about bats. Um, yeah. But anyway, so uh, Sports Illustrated invited Thompson to go out to Las Vegas to, he was living in um, 
not you know not too far away he got this invitation to go write like a 300 word caption for uh, sports illustrated and he decided this would be a great chance for him to just kind of jump in a car with oscar acosta and drive to las vegas and just have some time away from all the pressure to just kind of talk things through and the 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 first trip to vegas because there were there were actually two of them the first one is covering the mid 400 desert race which um that which was um kind of late march 1971 may 20th or 21st through like the 24th so it was just sort of a a sort of a lost weekend Mm -hmm. and then he went back to las vegas uh, about a month later in April of 1971, to cover the National Association of District Attorneys uh, Drug Conference. Okay, and yeah. in in the resulting text in in the book, this is all just sort of one trip. He kind of he, mm-hmm. he, there's there's the first part which covers the motorcycle race. He gets yanked away from Vegas uh, in 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 a grip of of anxiety and paranoia. Um, in reality, there was a month between these two things, but then he goes back to cover yeah. um, the drug conference. Um, so, th- so there is there is um, perhaps more so than other film adaptations of literary works or real events. There's there's a lot of really um, verifiable, tangible uh, right. history <laughs> to, that went into this, but the book becomes sort of this weird exercise in you know journalism fiction nonfiction social commentary it, like the, the 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 number of labels that you can attach mm-hmm. to this book are endless there's uh, like one other thing i remember from the book and it it kind of pops up in this movie but there's like an extended period where thompson is basically just discussing the 60s and what happened and all that stuff and we see that here with the flashback which where we see actual hunter s thompson i thought that was neat we also mm-hmm. uh one of the people there well first of all this is a i did not know this going in because i had never seen it i obviously knew johnny depp was in it, I knew benicio i didn't know that this movie was just as rife with like cameos as it is a lot of like big names in just like really small parts and in maybe some of them maybe future big names some of them not really big names to most people but like to someone like me who likes horror low budget science fiction like I love seeing Tim Thomerson spill a bunch of dirt and sand in Hunter S. Thompson's drink at the race <laughs> and I love seeing uh, uh, Harry Dean Stanton in there but uh, Paul Cantor of Jefferson Airplane is is in that scene as well at the, at the club which is fitting because Jefferson Airplane is performing at that club. But yeah, I like it's a it's a weird movie. And I, again, talking about the movie versus the book, I, the, the book's weird, too. And this is I'll be interested in hearing what you have to say about it. But I think this is kind of pretty regarded as a as a faithful adaptation, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. As always. Right. It sort of depends on what you mean by by faithful. Sure. Right? Um, it, it I think it captures something about the most important elements of the book, right? It, it captures something about the history. It captures something about sort of who Thompson was at the time or what he kind of what he has become as sort of a, mm-hmm. a, a demigod in the American literary pantheon. It, it captures something of his own particular take on gonzo journalism, this sort of very frenetic, very high-octane, high-energy, first-person subjective approach to kind of putting yourself in the story like it's it's definitely not word for word because that would be impossible of course right right it, it it's definitely it, it does not hew to the exact specifics page by page by page by page but i think the choices that it makes to deviate from the source text and how it like it requires a lot of interpretation 
mm-hmm. because if, with such a with such a with such a weird source text, you're going to have to make interesting creative decisions about how oh, to absolutely. interpret certain things. And I think by and large, it gets those choices right. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know that I could think of a better director to helm such a weird project than the man himself, right? Terry Gilliam is, I, I think, exactly the one for the job. I, I confess this is, um, to my knowledge anyways, this is the first Terry Gilliam I've seen, Terry Gilliam directed film I've seen that isn't a Monty Python movie, which those are kind of collaborative movies. They have more than one director. You know, it's it doesn't feel like it's truly Gilliam's voice over others. I, I know his reputation, obviously, with movies like Brazil and this that he's got a very unique style. And I mean, it certainly comes across in this movie, but I I don't have any other Gilliam projects to compare it to, I guess. But uh, I mean, he got my attention, that's for sure. I'm, I'm in a similar boat. I think I came to this film like a lot of people do who don't really go in for film quite as much. I, I very much drift along the surface of sort of kind of what's what's popular, what's out. Sure. And so when I came to this film, I did not know going in that Terry Gilliam was the director. I came to it, I think like a lot okay. of people do, is like, oh, here's a crazy Johnny Depp film, or here's here's a crazy film kind of thing. Well, it's a Johnny Depp film that, that's very clearly not a Tim Burton movie. And Tim Burton has his own uh, kind of out there style, but it's very distinct to him. And I mean, you know right away, this isn't a Tim Burton movie. And I find that so refreshing because Johnny Depp, he's a talented actor. I've, over time, I've just like, oh, I just don't like him. I'm just sick of him. And, and it's mostly because he's in all of these Tim Burton movies and he's he he always feels the same it was nice to see him doing something completely different I mean I got you know so Leonardo DiCaprio and the Wolf of Wall Street vibes obviously just because the the drugs but I I got some downright like Jim Carrey vibes like when he's walking into the bar before he sees the reptiles and just the way he moved reminded me of like um the really deliberate but like deliberately funny ways Jim Carrey would move in like Ace Ventura when he's just like goofing around and I don't know I I kind of enjoyed him here and he's doing his like weird voice thing which you know I kind of had to adjust to that well this this might come up later but the um like the movement wasn't something like like he's he's got that kind of particular like angular walk he's kind of got sort of that uh like the way he holds his feet he's kind of like swinging his hips and Mm -hmm. and doing that sort of thing Almost a Charlie Chaplin walk in a way, like the the little uh, tramp. I didn't I didn't think of that. Uh, probably because whenever I see that on screen, I'm reminded that Depp basically lived with Thompson right for quite a while mm-hmm. and studied kind of how he moved. That that's that is more accurate. Uh, that like that's not something that Depp came up with as an interpretation of the character right, so much right. as it is him representing the actual Hunter S. Thompson on screen. Part of the reason for that, too, because he's got kind of that, that loping walk where he's, uh, like like I mentioned, right, he kind of holds his feet at a weird angle and kind of sort of swings mm-hmm. his hips. That is because Thompson, one of Thompson's legs was actually slightly longer than the other. Okay. Which, yeah, like it's 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 not terribly uncommon. Um, I think that I guess, was Greg like, Oden's problem when he went into the NBA. I think they found out that uh, he was like, Drafted number one overall and just couldn't stay healthy. And I think the problem was one of his legs was longer than the, than the other. So, I mean, it can really affect you, obviously. Yeah. But. 
apparently it's 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 reasonably common but not to such a pronounced degree that it can cause okay. that big of a deal um but like thompson had back pain in later life that was yeah, yeah. um you know they think that was kind of attributable to this this one leg being longer than the other and actually in the text somewhere towards the end of the book he mentions it a lot of people who come to the film but have have no knowledge of the book or the kind of digging into the man behind the book see that as like the proto jack sparrow oh or, sure well and and of course the jack sparrow thing i don't i don't believe johnny depp ever lived with keith richards but that's another fam- <laughs> famous instance where he's borrowing something from a public person yeah all right so do you want to get us started on the what happens in this movie specifically sure let me ask you though, uh, as we're as we launch in here, when you saw the film, like how did you see it? Was it on streaming? Was it? Uh, did you pick up a physical copy? Is this one of those with different versions and stuff? No, this the, um, there there are. I, I work with a couple of different versions of the text for my own scholarship. Sure. Being yeah. being the Thompson scholar that that I am, I did pick up the Criterion Collection version. Okay. I don't know when Criterion released it, but when they when they did, they recorded commentary tracks from Johnny Depp and Benicio del Toro, mm-hmm. uh, a commentary track from Terry Gilliam, and okay. a commentary track from Hunter S. Thompson himself. So okay. it it is. And possible. when did he? He's he's no longer alive. So when did he pass away? He he um, he passed away in two thousand five. Okay, that was a little longer ago than I was expecting. So so somewhere in the 2003 range or so is when the Criterion would have released this, probably. I believe so, yeah. But anyway, it's, it's possible to watch this film with the author's uh, commentary track alongside it, which is, and, and this is, you know, towards the end of his life and, and, and at the end of a long career, it, 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 hmm, how do I put this? Uh, your, your mileage may vary on how entertaining uh, it is to have, shall we say, like a latter-day, late-stage Hunter S. Thompson uh, just kind of getting into his antics over the, uh, <laughs> over yeah. the film. But he, Quite frankly, I don't know if I'd want to hear that, especially knowing how he died, you know, he, he, he uh, committed suicide and everything. It's like, I don't really know if I want to hear from the, the guy who was probably just really messed up i'm not that he isn't messed up in 1968 and 71 and stuff when we're talking about the movie but you know i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah it's um there are there are there are pieces of really really brilliant insight and sometimes Mm -hmm. there's just like 30 straight seconds of high-pitched squealing it's um like (laughs) i said your (laughs) your mileage may vary Um, okay but anyway yeah so we start off here with kind of the, the title sequence with the Ralph Steadman logo, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and it sort of melts into this sort of dripping wax, and we've got this really eerie uh, version of, um, oh lord, it's going to slip my mind, what is it? Uh, my oh, favorite the, things. the music? Yeah. Raindrops and roses and whiskers yeah, and kittens yeah, yeah, all that. Yeah, that's, it's, that's, that's from, is that the Sound of Music? Sound of Music, yeah. We have this sort of standard of sort of mainstream American culture but set into like this German, weird minor German key. Austrian culture. Excuse, excuse you. Oh well, sound right, of, of music. <laughs> the, the sound of music. Come on, it's right. Austrian. 
Um, I'm thinking of the is it Julie Andrews and spinning right. around in the well, who's English? <laughs> yeah, right. Julian. Right. This is this is a this is a uh, multicultural coalition of uh, yeah. But anyway, you you get this kind of very weird minor key. You get the 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 title sort of dripping into into this like bloody wax. You've got mm-hmm. um, you've got historical footage of Vietnam protests and yeah, yeah. You know, like dropping Agent Orange on stuff. Like the student unrest is it. It, it attempts. There's to, anti Johnson signs and stuff like that. It attempts to contextualize the film, and I think that's where the film starts going off the rails for the popular audience because the marketing for this film, and even even now, it's it sort of its reputation is sort of like a crazy buddy comedy, more along the lines yeah. of where the Buffalo Roam, and then we launch into this sort of artsy old like like old footage what's going on here and then everything stops and we shift at high speed we've got that wipe that takes us directly into the red shark going at 100 miles an hour and we get the famous opening line uh, we were somewhere around barstow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold and they never give up their hold basically through rest the rest of the movie They're, he's like constantly on something it's like one of like four different things sometimes a combination mm-hmm. after a while like i i mean i i i know a little bit obviously about hunter s thompson and in his history with this and i knew obviously i read the book before but i was waiting for that like one scene where there's some clarity and there never really is <laughs> this movie made me so anxious and i think mostly in a good way because I, I, again that's clearly what the movie's trying to do but yeah, this movie is just—it's oh, relentless and just everything just feels crazy. W- would you say that that anxiety is more fear or more loathing? Oh, uh, I would say more fear than loathing, <laughs> but, but perhaps a bit of both. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't, right I didn't loathe title. this movie. Yeah, yeah, I didn't—I didn't hate this movie or anything. I, it, it did make me uneasy. It, it's weird, right? Like the the original text, you know, what was published in Rolling Stone was apparently received as high comedy right like as uh, fear and loathing in las vegas like like we talked a little bit already about the the various labels that get attached to it but perhaps more than anything else it is a it is a withering satire like this yes. it's a it's a jonathan swiftian level eating irish babies level satire on kind of the collapse of the gestalt positivity of the 60s okay yeah into sort of the the inevitable slide into Nixon's America, law and order, Vietnam War forever kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so it, that that opening scene, if nothing else, I think it is trying to synthesize all of those things all at once. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's also a bit, it kind of throws me off a bit because, yeah, I like Thompson, when he's written about the 60s, he kind of views all the things going on as... Oh, like what you were saying, the po- uh, positivity. Nowadays, we whether it's because of what we have faced in the modern world since the '60s and since the since the time when this book was written. But when I see stuff like what they show in that scene with the protests and and like posters and stuff, I don't really see like a positivity. I, I see people obviously being motivated to change, but I see some like helplessness there too so I, I see i see negativity too just as much as there is positivity i don't know like thompson himself wasn't pollyanna-ish about the 60s right he, his first book on the hell's angels oh yeah 
you know, the Hells Angels played a, a, a fairly prominent role in sort of the, uh, I don't know, he, uh, let, let, maybe a better way to say it is they were one of the, one of the more hmm, recognizable players, maybe, maybe bit players, but still, you know, they're, they're, they're rec- a recognizable face of the 60s. And his, his take on them was basically that they were doomed, right? That, that, that they really, mm-hmm. when you dig into them, they represent nothing, nothing good for the future of the United States, right? There's um, a couple years ago, we passed the 50th anniversary of the publication of Hell's Angels. And I remember at the time that there were a couple of like think pieces that came out that basically said, if Thompson was writing this today, he'd be writing about the, the, the diehard uh, Trump voters, right? And the QAnon types and the... Oh um, yeah, the alt-right, something alt-right. The alt-right, right exactly, yeah. exactly, right. He had a pretty keen eye for the good and the bad. But like when he talks about the 60s, when he talks about it in it's in in the most positive terms that he uses, they're almost always sort of like personal moments. Right. He, he very okay, rarely sure. points to someone and says, oh, that person was, you know, was the the, the saint of the 60s. Right. Or like mm-hmm. this this movement or this force or this time embodied all the hopes of a generation. Right. He when he talks about the 60s in, in very positive, glowing ways. He tends to be very general and very broad about that, unless he's talking about a very personal memory. But one of the things I wanted to point out here with the film specifically is the music, because I I think I first mm-hmm. read Fear and Loathing when I was maybe 15, 16. First got okay. my hands on a copy. I had seen the film first, not knowing what it was, and oh, there's a book. I should read this, and I and I read the book. But I think I only realized like last year. In the book there are two songs that are played one on top of the other. They're playing simultaneously in this car. And I don't think that they could okay. get... I don't think that they could get the rights for all the music, especially some of the Rolling Stones music. Um, yeah, they play the Rolling Stones at the end of the movie, but that's it. Right. And, and one of the commentary tracks, like, I think it's uh, Leila Nabulsi, the, the producer, says something along the lines of, like, finally we get the Rolling Stones. Because <laughs> the Rolling Stones start this book. And in the beginning, mm-hmm. in, the, in the first scene, you have Brewer and Shipley's uh, One Toke Over the Line which does make it into the film, um, but in the book, simultaneously playing is Sympathy for the Devil. Mm-hmm. So you've got, like, in a nutshell there, you've got kind of the, the kind of that upbeat, happy, like, oh, you know, one toke over the line, sweet Jesus, right? You've got uh, this kind of happy, bouncy beat. And on the other end, you have possibly one of the darkest, grimmest <laughs> incarnations of uh, a Rolling Stones song. And I mean, it's both... got a bit of a bouncy beat, though, too. I mean, that Keith Richards playing the bass on that song is pretty amazing stuff. But no, I get it. Sympathy yeah. for the Devil, thematically a very dark song. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 that would fit with this movie pretty well, I think. In the book, you have both of those playing simultaneously. Here, you have something you have something similar, but it doesn't it doesn't quite come across musically that we are we are diving into sort of two men taking one last '60s style run amok trip. Trip trip in two senses. Yeah, right, right exactly. <laughs> While the rest of the country, like they're going to the last place where this is possible, while the rest of the country slides deeper and deeper into sort of that post '60s funk, Nixon's America, Law and Order kind of grimness, if that if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. I, I love Benicio del Toro in this scene. Just he is a fiend. <laughs> I don't know what to, I do. I still, even when I watch it now, I don't know what to make of him. His he 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 manages to bring across the the ominousness, right? The the unpredictability of 
Dr. Gonzo in, a, in yeah. an effective way. Interesting. He doesn't, he has a very different energy to um, Johnny Depp in this movie, but like in a way that I, I think is uh, unpredictable, I think is a good word. Like there are moments where he is so much more with it. There are moments where he's almost guiding Johnny Depp, and then there are moments where he's just off in his own world, and it's really, really weird. Um, and it's, it's uh, I guess, not a consistent performance, but I don't, I don't say that as if it, that's a mistake or anything. That's just mm-hmm. kind of chaotic. Yeah, the 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 original text was was written. Thompson didn't use his his actual name uh, yeah, until, the, until the book Duke. came out. Yeah, it's it's written by Raoul Duke, his his pseudonym. Um, and so in the book you ha- or, uh, yeah in the in the book or the original text you have Raoul Duke and Doctor Gonzo being mm-hmm. sort of the, the the analogs of Hunter S. Thompson and Oscar Acosta. But yeah, the the that kind of unpredictability, that that dark uh, energy that Benicio brings to the role. I think part of that comes from the the original text too, insofar as like. Raoul Duke or Thompson's character still has to maintain a certain journalistic capability to observe. Like it's still very participatory, right? He he, he kind of makes himself and ex- and his experiences the story here, but he he has to keep himself one step removed. And Doctor Gonzo doesn't have to do any of that. They're, 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 he, right. Doctor yeah. Gonzo needs no restraint, and he can he can plunge even deeper into whatever. Yeah, this is, is a, a pure vacation for him, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you make of of Tobey Maguire's appearance? That that was the first like, oh, this person's in the movie moment <laughs> I had. I mean, first of all, they they like pull up. He's on the side of the road, and I'm like, I think that's Tobey Maguire. I wasn't sure because he's like an albino with like the long blonde hair he was just like weird and it seemed like he didn't have more than two or three lines he's mostly just an observer when they take him along which i mean i gotta say i'm with him like if i were in that scenario i don't think i'd be saying a whole lot if i'm driving with those guys and one of them thinks there's bats everywhere and the other is just doesn't he pull a gun out in this scene i mean dr gonzo does there's just crazy stuff going on like i i toby mcguire doesn't really make much of an impression Mm -hmm. but how could he compared to the the insanity of what's around him i guess yeah he he couldn't shave like he couldn't the, the hair is not his own basically yeah right? yeah so i kind of figured it. yeah so he had to wear a bald cap in the middle of the desert um and so watching <laughs> him get progressively sweatier and grosser yeah it really works well as as sort of a reflection of just how increasingly terrified yeah. he gets Oh, and in general, too, you know, regardless of him, this is one of the sweatiest movies I've ever seen. Just everyone is, uh, well, and it helps, too, because the camera is so frequently tight on somebody's face, usually um, Johnny Depp, but there's, like, always sweat. Everything is moist and just, like, disgusting, and it's, like, I mean, it makes sense. It's in the desert and everything, and just plus with all the drugs they're taking, I guess it makes sense, but yeah, that adds to the anxiety that i that i am getting from this film i guess i wonder how much of it is a deliberate choice or maybe a better way to say that is i wonder i wonder to what degree that choice is deliberate because there is a there is a critique of the kind of the plastic mass-produced mainstream america going on here and i think that the film perhaps even more so than the original text brings in an element of human grease against that 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 plastic okay, america sure. um 
Uh, and, but like I said, I don't know how, uh, I don't know to what degree uh, of deliberateness that is done, um, but, but it is effective. And that is another area mm-hmm. where Benicio Del Toro really shines. Also, did he gain weight for this movie? Because yes. mean, he's in that opening scene, he's driving. I, I'm not used to seeing him that heavy. I haven't seen him in a bunch of movies, but he's heavier than I'm accustomed to seeing him, I guess. Like this film really abused some of the sex symbol appeal of its of its lead characters right like johnny depp you know the the heartthrob this is this is like this is like uh this this film comes out in early peak johnny depp heartthrob um Mm -hmm. and there is there is a there is a delicious reveal a little bit later in the film in the the mint hotel lounge where he whips off his hat and he is bald more like it betrays the sex appeal i think right and now thompson Thompson was, was yeah. He, he, John, doesn't Johnny Depp have that like bald cap thing going in Black Mass from like a few years ago? I feel like he looks just like I'm gonna look that up. Yeah, you're gonna and, have to. Uh, I didn't. I didn't see it. Oh no, wait. Yes, I, I did. didn't see it either. I, I did I, see I, Black I, Mass, and it was. It didn't look as as, as natural. Oh yeah, as he, this. He, no, it doesn't look as natural, but he does look kind of similar with this, mm-hmm. the same kind of baldness. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is kind of. It is. It, it this movie flings, uh, you know, flings the broken, bloody remnants of Johnny Depp's sex appeal in the face of its of its audience. We're talking about a guy who is sexy even when he had scissors for hands. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, think yeah exactly. About that. As a point of historical interest, Johnny Depp. Or, I'm sorry, Hunter S. Thompson himself shaved Johnny Depp's head. Interesting. And the, the, the whole, like, <laughs> you know, screwing with the, the sex appeal, just to loop things back, they did the same thing with, with Del Toro, right? There, there's the, the scene in the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel where he stands up from the table and the camera is just tightly focused on his gut. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they, they, they uh, kind of explain their, their rationale, their raison d'etre to the hitchhiker. Nominally, they're going to cover the Mint 400 Desert Race, but they're also in search of the American Dream. And the only mm-hmm. way to do that is in a Fire Apple Red convertible and at least half a pint of ether, or however that line goes. <laughs> do you have much experience with representations of Las Vegas in film? Um, a little bit. Uh, well, f- first of all, I mean, I've been to Vegas a number of times because my brother used to live there. Hmm. But I, w- I-, I wanted to bring this up at some point because... This movie takes place in 1971, which is the year that the James Bond film, my least favorite James Bond film, Jim's least favorite James Bond film, my usual co-host, came out, and that is Diamonds Are Forever. There is a a decent amount of that movie takes place in Las Vegas. It takes place in the downtown part of Vegas, which is the Fremont Street, which we see here, which looks awesome what we do see of it, because as I understand, uh, I had never heard of the hotel, the, the, the Mint Mm-hmm. I had never heard of that hotel, and I looked it up, and they, it, it was gone in the 80s or something, so that wasn't around. So I don't know if they're doing that with sets or, or you know, if there was a matte painting or whatever, but it looked really neat. But anyways, Diamonds Are Forever, 1971. There is a car chase in the Las Vegas, in the Fremont Street section of, of downtown Las Vegas, and it is possibly the worst car chase in movie history it, it basically just goes around like one block over and over again it's so embarrassing isn't it doesn't at one point they're like they reach a dead end and then they like bond does a three-point turn and then just drives the other way i think so yeah it's, and it's, I, yeah there's it's been a while since i've seen that movie but it there's a reason for that it's i watched it's the scene you're good. talking about the the car chase scene you know trying to find accurate photographs and video of what 
Las Vegas would have looked like in okay. 1971. It's not easy to do, but all of a sudden you have we to have watch a, Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> right, right. There's Diamonds Are Forever here. Here, I mean, it's not you know, it's not like uh, found footage or anything like that. But that's that's one of the <laughs> one of the best uh, historical documents source. we have at this point. <laughs> Um, that's yeah, interesting. That's, yeah. the, the, I, I was far more interested in looking at like the buildings in the background than I was watching the actual car chase. I don't blame you. So the Mint Hotel was built by uh, Dell Webb, and the superstructure of that building is still there. Okay. And it actually, like, the, the film presents it as sort of like, like kind of like dark reddish carpet and like dark wood paneling. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of that is... What like if you go to Vegas, you can see a lot of that same kind of basic um, aesthetic in what remains of the mint, uh, which is now part of Binion's. So oh I, yeah, that, I was going to ask if that was Binion's. Yeah, yeah. So at the time that uh, Thompson was was there, um, Binion's Horseshoe and uh, the Mint Hotel were next to each other, and I think it was maybe it was in '83. It was I think in the um, in the early '80s when Binion's acquired mm-hmm. the mint. But the the hotel tower is still there, although it is currently unused. And like like any good researcher, um, I have been to the Mint, and, and I, I tried my <laughs> damnedest to to get into the old Mint Hotel tower to see if I could track down you know the um, the actual room that Thompson and Acosta yeah. stayed in, which. I have to, uh, I should acknowledge this in the text. Thompson gives two different room numbers for his Mint Hotel room, but the there's there's no way to get in. It's all behind locked doors. The elevator doesn't uh, doesn't open on those floors. Sounds like you didn't try hard enough. I, I, I let me tell you, I so the the first time I tried. Um, I took the elevator to the top because there's a, there's still a restaurant at the top of the old mint tower um, and you could get up there but like none of the floor like the elevator wouldn't stop at any of the floors so like right. I took it up to the top I looked around a little bit and then as I was going back down I started jamming the button for the floor that I wanted just over and over thinking <laughs> oh yeah maybe I'll just I'll, I'll it's an old elevator right maybe I'll just confuse the thing and yeah. Uh, and right around it's a good way to get stuck there for the rest of your well, life too, probably I, I don't know <laughs> I don't know if somebody was watching or whether I just did something weird to the elevator, but the elevator stopped between floors, just froze about halfway down (laughs) for about three minutes. And then it just started moving again. And like, I don't know if there was somebody, like if there was a camera in there and somebody in some back room was just like, I'm going to, I'm going to spook this kid and like (laughs) stop the elevator or whether I did something goofy with the system. But uh, most recently I tried to leverage my, um, uh, my standing, shall we say, as a as a PhD candidate, and apparently it's like it's so junky in there that it would be something oh, of a sure. liability to bring someone in there, which I totally understand. Yeah, but, um, yeah. but they have no. From what I have been told, there are no plans to demolish the Mint Tower because you know it's. They probably never finished cleaning up his room. To <laughs> it, anything like it is in the movie? Okay, that's my that's my headcanon now. The 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 mess yeah. in the the mint that's hotel the suite. That's the reason it's closed down. It's like a Stephen King sort of thing where it just the 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 mess in that that suite just sort of spread throughout the building, and now it's now yeah, you can't yeah. get in there. I like also, that. Also, how weird is it that Johnny Depp, who at some point in his career, maybe in the early '90s, maybe it was around this time had a reputation for trashing hotel rooms 
is in this movie trashing hotel rooms. It's so weird. I would love to get the the dates on that because I don't know how much of that because he he became friends with Thompson. Yeah, how in much the of it was, was through Thompson? Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Well, but there are a whole lot of really famous people who have a, a history. Oh, Keith of... Moon. So yeah, so they they get into their they get their press passes and we have this sequence with the lizards, the uh, the, the the lounge lizards. Oh, yes, Which, this is, um, I got to point this out because uh, yeah. we, we mostly talk about horror movies on this podcast. These lizards, these lizard creatures are designed by Rob, I don't know if it's Botten or Botine. I have heard it both ways, but he is a renowned effects artist, hmm. particularly for The Thing. He did, the, he did all the effects on The Thing, which if you ask me, is like the best practical effect ever. So he's great with like creatures and monsters here. And yeah, he did, he did, he did so he put in some work for this movie. It looks yeah, good. for sure. That's, that's interesting. I did not, I did not know that. Um, later on towards the end of the film, Raul Duke is, is seen walking around with one of those lizard tails strapped to him. And I thought, wow, that's yeah. I was really impressed on how well that was designed. Cause it just like, it moves naturally with, with how Johnny Depp imitating Thompson's weird bipedal gait. Like it's, it, uh, uh, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. The lizard effects are, are, as practical effects, they're really cool. The original lounge lizard art was, of course, and we can't go through talking about this film without mentioning um, Ralph Steadman, whose, whose art yeah. is closely associated who's with... Who's Oprah's support. close friend. Really? No. This, Oprah's friend on the show is like, Sted, his name is Steadman. Oh, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> no, no, no connection. Okay. I'm just making a joke. <laughs> yeah. Ralph Steadman, of course, the uh, the English artist who um, worked with Thompson on his breakthrough piece, the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved. And it's it's sort of the dominant aesthetic attached to Thompson and, and Gonzo the whole way. It's that's. Yeah, the, like the frog. Isn't Dr. Gonzo kind of like a frog on the cover of the book or something? He has a, looks, looks there's one illustration like. in particular. He's got a very sort of froggy yeah. cast to him. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say before we move too far on, there's a there's a, um, a visual image here where the, they're in the, they're in the hotel suite. Uh, Duke has turned on the TV and there's coverage of the Laos invasion in, in Vietnam. And like the, the, the visuals on the TV start getting projected onto the room. And so we see we see aerial footage of um, a bomber dropping incendiary explosives on a forest, which is projected mm-hmm. onto the thick carpet of the suite. And uh, it took me way too long to to realize that there was a carpet bombing joke. Oh yeah, I, I I didn't make that connection until you brought it up. <laughs> that is kind. That's like a visual pun. Yeah, that does exemplify kind of the interesting creative decisions though that Gilliam does a lot of visual stuff I'm not sure if they're all as motivated as that one but they're all really really interesting and fascinating to look at mm-hmm. like like I mean you brought up the lizard tail the, the very first time I saw this film possibly because I, I was conflating it with the source text I didn't realize that it was made in the 90s like I thought I thought that it was made in like the 70s. So yeah, clearly I must have been conflating it with the text. So I thought like I thought all the visual effects were you know really good for their time, and then somebody oh that like, would have I mean th- I think they're they're good for the '90s though too. Like we get the CGI of like um, people's faces getting warped and stuff. I mean it doesn't mm-hmm. look photorealistic, but that's also not something that happens in real life. So I think it carries with it that kind of uncanny, just like drug trip type feeling and, and then when like nixon's face keeps popping out of the tv and appearing mm-hmm. and stuff like that that was great I, yeah. I liked all the effects and stuff the moray eel lady at the desk mm-hmm. the carpet kind of creeping up onto that guy's legs at the phone booth mm-hmm. 
That's a that's a great effect. Mm-hmm. And actually, speaking of the those little visual bon mots that that show up from time to time, there are there's a couple of places. I think it's in the the next hotel suite that they're in. Uh, at the flamingo but one when that one gets trashed you can see that like different carpets like the carpet from the hallway has started like infesting the room okay like there's like the carpet like sort of like swoops and melds and kind of i don't know it's it's yeah 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 it, it lends to the trippiness of the film for sure let's jump ahead to the to the desert race here because okay the the race itself well, Thompson was, was uh, going to be paid by Sports Illustrated to go out and, and cover this race, and uh, that was never published because they asked for 300 words, and they, he sent them, like, 30,000 words, and so that, that wasn't going to fly. <laughs> I, I, I thought maybe it was like he didn't even watch the race, which is kind of what <laughs> happens in the movie. I mean, he doesn't really... He, he did go out. He did, he did cover the race, and I actually, this past year, this past year was 2021, was the 50th anniversary of the publication of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And so I actually went out to Las Vegas to the the running of that year's Mint 400, 50 years since since Thompson went. They still bill it as, you know, the one of the richest off-road races in America. And it it's the film does a pretty good job of what the Mint 400 I mean it looks obviously it looks a little different now. There's kind of the stuff is more modernized. Right. I, I I was impressed watching this film again after having gone out and been to the Mint 400. I was impressed at how faithful that scene uh, is to kind of what the Mint 400 is. Yeah, and if, that's when, of course, we get our little uh, cameo by Gilliam himself. He's got the, the long, like, sound recording boom, and he's right up by the, the bikes. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's sort of, he's sort okay. of crouched down. He's got a shit-eating grin on his face. So then, let's see. After that, after we get um, we get through the the desert race, we get through that that absolutely foul, dust soaked mug of beer. Then we oh yeah, <laughs> thank you, Tim Thomerson, just, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just dusting all the stuff into there. Well, then we get to this weird sort of middle sequence. It's sort of the connective tissue of the film between the desert race and the the next sequence, and they have Duke and Gonzo driving around through Vegas, trying to find what to do on a Saturday night. And mm-hmm. the the images of old Las Vegas are all projected around them. So if, if, if I remember correctly, they basically put the put the convertible up on, a, on some kind of stand that could tilt back and forth. And then they had, okay. um, I think it might have been a, a sequence from an old TV show that was set in Las Vegas, but they had okay. that footage just sort of projected all around them to give the impression... Got kind of a trippy impression, but still a yeah, sense of yeah, driving yeah. through, you know, Glitter Gulch, right, going through the, the neon sure. Las Vegas. I will say the the sequence at the Debbie Reynolds show, they actually mm-hmm. got Debbie Reynolds to record lines for this film. That wasn't, okay. that wasn't like um, someone else's voice, and, or it wasn't... Uh, historical uh, recorded okay, audio yeah, yeah. or pre-recorded yeah. stuff okay yeah because yeah, I, I saw an imdb it, it listed it said debbie reynolds you know mm-hmm. parenthetical voice or something and i mean reading that i would have thought like oh yeah they just took a previously recorded thing that's it's fascinating to me i didn't i didn't know yep. <laughs> they, they they got a fresh recording of debbie reynolds in yep. there and she Carrie she Fisher's she was playing herself. the desert inn in 1971. She was there. That okay, is, sure. that is 100% yeah. true. Guy Lombardo was in the blue room with his Royal Canadians. All that is is verifiably <laughs> historically accurate. They couldn't get Is it also verifiable that 
Duke and Gonzo were friends of Debbie, as they claim to be in this scene. That I I have not been able to (laughs) dig up any kind of proof of that, no. (laughs) Okay. Um, They couldn't get the rights to use the Circus Circus for the I noticed uh, that, yeah. They didn't use the name Circus Circus. It was just like Circus something. The Bazookos Circus. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, but that oh that that was I mean we're, we're this is sort of a comedy movie. We're not talking about it as if I mean it's not one of those comedy movies. But I, I will say the scene of them walking up to the circus circus was was that had me like laughing pretty hysterically because because they start walking. I think they they take ether right before going in and then this is Johnny Depp's narration is telling you about like how it affects you know your movement and stuff like that and we're seeing this shot from like chest up and we could see they're moving a little weird but they you know they're 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 walking and then we uh cut to a shot from behind them and they're they're like (laughs) they're just stumbling around and that was very funny to me yeah Uh, I thought that would that was a really well done um little edit there the, there, there are elements of physical comedy to this film that are that with everything else that 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 people talk about with this film that just like there's no there's no time to get to that it's it's underrated. Okay, sure. Now, and I I will say once they get inside the circus circus and they they go to this this casino that has this just absurd I think perhaps the most Monty Python esque sequence in its absurdity they have the the gym the gymnasts. And the acrobats doing their oh, thing. Oh yeah! And it's this weird, like, birth of an American space baby gymnastic routine yeah. over this pit filled with gambling tables and jugglers and all that kind of stuff. From what I've seen, what limit, what what little I have seen about people uh, kind of doing what we're doing, right? Commenting in some detail on this film, um, <laughs> people tend to think of this as as one of the weirder uh, liberties that the film takes with reality. Okay. But I think those people have never been to the actual Circus Circus because this exists in reality. <laughs> really? Yeah. This, like, this specific circus act. Uh, not, I, I mean, they, they've got, like, a, an amusement park inside the Circus Circus now. I mean, I, I don't know. They've got a bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. but... Well, the the, okay. the the casino... Um, the casino's still there. The Circus Circus is still there. Sure. Um, and there is still... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not it's not so much like table games it's mostly slot machines now but there is still there's still a like an acrobat performance oh, area oh, like above the thing yeah right. okay so yeah. so on the main okay. floor you've got what, what right now it's it's mostly um like slot machines kind of games um in mm-hmm. in 1971 it was more like you see in the film with the the gambling tables and the the, the table games and pendulette and right that <laughs> is that pendulette yeah that was oh man okay i he was one of the few people that's like that. I should know that face, but I didn't know who it was. That's... We saw, we saw Vern Troyer earlier in the movie. He was at one of the casinos. Vern Troyer, aka Mini Me. Oh yeah, up. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's um, he sneaks inside the the cape with a stack of hundred dollar bills. Yeah, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the the circus circus is one of those things uh, that we see in the film that looks like it's an absurd exaggeration that is actually a bit more faithful to the reality, right? There, the the merry go round. They have the spinning bar. Yes, I was just about just, to say the merry go round. That is the real bar, thing. Okay, that's still there. It doesn't spin anymore. Would... Okay, I was gonna say because there would be people throwing up there. Oh, yeah. I'd be one of them. I well, think, and now now it's an ice cream bar. 
and it's it really is like a like a carnival midway full of like you know pop the balloon and uh, th- th- knock down the milk bottles with the baseball kind of games right the, the kind of the fun fair some of the stuff we see in Hellfest when yeah they, when they when that guy struggles to win a little doll for his kind of girlfriend I I wondered if if that was the um, if that was the connective tissue between um, having these two films together there's one very loose. Uh, connection i guess to be made yeah. also i'll just say not much plot in either movies that's There's true connection there's another one <laughs> yeah I, I i don't know i would i would have to talk to a bunch of people who have seen the film and then read the book but i would love to know how many people see this film and then uh, who have not read the book and then go to the book and then all of a sudden the film makes more sense right i've i've studied this for over 10 oh, years okay. now and i like i've lost all perspective on what does come across as intelligible in this film in terms of plot and structure and theme because right. it's all it's all just enmeshed in my head at this point yeah like it's the, the film has less of a plot unless you are more familiar with the book perhaps i don't i don't know i've i've lost okay. uh, lost the ability to tell now <laughs> <laughs> right the um the shot of them walking at the end of this horrible carnival scene Benicio del Toro is just leaning farther and farther and farther back, and then and then we get to a point where he defies physics in uh, yeah. the way he's walking. I guess that was a, that was just a neat practical effect with a floor that okay. tilted, and so um, yeah, I get the, they probably have stuff like that at the circus circus, like, <laughs> the way they have like a funhouse mirror and stuff. Like sure, yeah, they didn't have that when I was there, but I my understanding is that it was like a tilted floor, and so in that shot, Johnny okay. Depp is actually leaning forward really far, and uh, oh, okay, yeah, it's interesting. It's since we were talking about practical effects earlier, so then we get we get into the really heavy duty sweet trashing. After after they get back from the circus circus, we get they get back to their mint hotel room and which I want to say most most of the trashing we don't really we don't see the trashing take place so much as like we see kind of the aftermath of it. We see we see it kind of like creatively depicted with people just kind of going crazy. I feel like usually and we don't see like and then I don't know and then like in the morning then we kind of see what happened. Mm. I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's interesting. I hadn't noticed that, but I think you're right. I don't. I don't know if that was a like a, a practical choice. It's not really described so much in the books either. And I don't know how much how much time. Yeah, I I would imagine it's it's mostly just like a um, thematic isn't the right word, but just like a more authentic depiction of of someone who's on those kinds of drugs, right? Like yeah. when they're when this stuff is happening, they don't even necessarily realize it and and i mean i'm i'm listen i've never taken any of the drugs that are talked <laughs> about in this movie i can't say with any kind of certainty but i i feel like in those scenes when like someone wakes up like in the scene when um jenny Depp wakes up and then a room service guy comes in and he and he's, it doesn't really mean to be pointing the gun at him but he was he wakes up holding the gun so the guy freaks out yep. and like scenes like that the, the, those do feel very much like um i don't know you're waking up after like a awful binge on something and you're like you don't quite know what happened but you, you look around you see something happened obviously despite my my deep scholarly uh interest in thompson i have also never taken a- any of the substances mentioned in this film uh or in the in the original text but um 
I, I have to imagine that it's so, it's sort of like when you're in a like an old video game and the processor's chugging along and and um, uh, elements of the game just sort of take a while to pop in. Okay. A little bit like that, right? Like re- like reality. You wake up and reality is not quite popping in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is that Cameron Diaz in the uh, elevator? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other faces that I'm supposed to recognize? Because um, there's there's I, the photographer I, Lacerda. No one that I've noticed. And yeah, okay, yeah. that's good. All right, I feel a little bit better now because uh, there I just realized that was uh, wait. Now was it Penn or Teller who's in the circus circus? Penn Teller is the one who doesn't speak. Oh right, it's okay. Little, I don't know if that's why he's called Teller because he can't tell anything, you know, the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, Penn Penn is the Penn is the big guy. Not to to jump too far along here, but um, we're coming up on that bathroom scene that you mentioned earlier, which features a absolutely filthy, disgusting Benicio del Toro thrashing around <laughs> in. Okay, maybe we'll go from sweaty and moist to like like the gross bathroom steam that gets when you've got a lot of hot yeah, water yeah. like that's that whole so you've got like grapefruit rinds and beer cans and he's still got half of his suit on and i think the thing that sticks yeah. out the most is the tidy whities sure that that scene is a master class in just that that human grease element that i mentioned earlier mm-hmm. um but Interestingly enough, and this is something I, I turned up as I was doing my um, variorum, which which compares different versions of the text, the bathroom sequence does not appear in the original Rolling Stone version. That's interesting because that's like the scene that I remember most from the novel. Yeah, and it is it is absolutely one of the most vivid, right? Right. Because you have <laughs> yeah. Dr. Gonzo with a death wish, right? Um, yeah. Thrashing around in the bathtub, and you've got Jefferson Airplane blaring... That sequence does not appear in the original version of the text. And I don't know if it was in there originally and they cut it out and so Thompson wanted it and so they mm-hmm. put it back in the, the book version. Like there's there's a there's a, a blank space in the history of this book. Sure. Somebody I'm sure would know, but like in terms of what's known to scholarship right now, who knows? If that got written afterwards or, or what, but yeah, the the original. Uh, if you were to if you were to pick up a copy of Rolling Stone in nineteen November nineteen seventy one, you would not have encountered Doctor Gonzo in the bathtub. Just probably how you'd prefer. If we're talking <laughs> about reality here. Yeah, and then that that leads us right into the flashback sequence in the Matrix. Yep. So this is this is the Jefferson airplane playing, and this is where. Hunter S. Thompson, and, and it's funny because it's a cameo, mm-hmm. but the film acknowledges him. Mm-hmm. It, it's like present-day Thompson, or I guess past Thompson, you know, Raul Duke recognizes actual Hunter S. Thompson, which is just kind of like a weird kind of meta <laughs> moment. I don't really know what to make of it, I guess. Thompson was notoriously difficult to work with, I'm told, and there are, again, with the Criterion Collection version of this, there are a couple of scenes... They're, they're, like there's a couple different versions of this scene, and Thompson's favorite was one where he lunges across the table and like manhandles Depp's face or like slaps him across the head or something <laughs> like that. They didn't use that in the final film, but it, but it was filmed, so it's like an outtake. Yeah, exactly. A deleted scene or something. Okay, interesting. 
I was in San Francisco last July. Oh, that's right. This is San Francisco. I forgot. Right. This yeah. this flashback is back in San Francisco because we're in in the book. This is where Thompson starts to kind of wax poetic about his personal experience of mm-hmm. being in San Francisco in the middle '60s and all the things that were happening with with the music and the LSD and the yeah. He always says the middle '60s. That that's such a weird. Like we, anyone else would just say like the mid '60s, right? But he, I, I never thought of it that way. That's an interesting. I've just always heard mid '60s or mid '50s or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, huh? I hadn't, I hadn't realized that before. But yeah, it, it does. It 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 puts a different music on that on that phrase. But anyway, yeah, the the film's version of the Matrix makes makes the Matrix look like a like a huge industrial warehouse and like even the bathroom is huge where where flea comes in and starts sucking on the sleeve of his that's right that's another, yeah flea another another cameo that's right yeah the actual matrix itself is kind of a hole in the wall place it's it's actually a pretty small place um it's the white rabbit okay. now it's it, it changed it's not oh, the matrix well, it's anymore named after a jefferson airplane song okay yeah, it's it's actually a pretty tiny place. I was actually just at a bar here in Oxford called the White Rabbit. Oh yeah, just two nights ago. Huh. Nothing like like the scene here in the Matrix. Nothing <laughs> like nothing like that atmosphere. So yeah, so that 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 Matrix flashback, which features producer and sometime Thompson girlfriend Lila Nabulsi in the role of Grace Slick singing famously, um, "Somebody to Love." And we, we don't see her that close on, but just like from a distance, that is a very Grace Slick looking yeah. figure shape, I guess. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, we, <laughs> the hair, I feel like they got that right. Yep. That leads us into kind of the, I think I called it the, um, what was it? I called it maybe the literary climax of the film. It's uh, it's it's the sequence that is referred to both in the book and, and, and in this film as the wave speech. And this is where we get more of the old footage from rallies and protests we get some woodstock here we get you know a couple of naked hippies and a uh, uh, people getting chased by cops and, and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and this is where thompson reflects on his own personal experience he kind of he he encapsulates the spirit of the of the 60s in terms of his own freedom right he talks about it's the most beautiful prose in the in the book and it's like uh kind of how thompson doesn't really it's almost like he's kind of romanticizing it but he's also in a way he's also kind of de-romanticizing it and i but i don't know his romanticizing it is in strictly personal terms and you're right like we were talking about earlier he doesn't really point to a particular organization or a particular individual and say, aha, this, this, this is what right. represents the high ideals of the 60s in its purest form, right? He's, he's, more, inclined on, or he's more inclined to bag on people he sees as, as crippling that, that, that energy. Like Timothy Leary, he's, he, has, he has really has some real uh, vicious things to say about Timothy Leary in this book. Well, and it's kind of, it's kind of ironic, too, if you were to look at some of the Maybe Thompson doesn't write about these people, but some of the people that we would kind of hold up as, like, positive figures from the 60s, like, their story in the 60s becomes a negative story about the 60s, too, because you could talk about Martin Luther King, and he's assassinated. Like, what does that say? Or Robert Kennedy, who, A, no one ever talks about this, but he spied on Martin Luther King. Like, he has some pretty negative stuff going on in his political career, but then also he was assassinated. Like, this, so I, I, I sort of understand, not necessarily saying that this is the same thought process that Thompson's working with, but I do understand, like, the not wanting to kind of deify 
a certain figure because because you're always going to come to something negative from that, even if it's not them specifically. I think that's maybe one of the reasons why the wave speech holds up, right? Besides besides the basic poetry of the language, which uh, Johnny Depp does give a pretty good reading of here, I think. But Thompson contextual or he, he not contextualizes, but he describes his memories of the '60s in terms that are totally unique mm-hmm. to him, right? He, he talks about, uh, uh, my central memory of that time seems to hang on one or five or maybe 40 nights or very early mornings when I left the Fillmore, half crazy, and instead of going home, aimed the big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour, wearing an L.L. Bean, uh, wearing L.L. Bean shorts and a Butte sheep herder's jacket, right? He, he talks about uh, driving at night, much like he, he does when he ends um, uh, the famous passage of his about the edge that ends the Hell's Angels book. U two was around. It's, back it's then? all in personal terms. Yeah, this is the this is the the elegy for his experience of the '60s and whatever sort of general energy um, he he calls it um, the peak. San Francisco in the middle '60s, middle '60s again <laughs> was a very special time and place to be a part of. Right. It seems entirely reasonable to think that now and then the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long fine flash. He's not going to be specific about it, but he respects and mourns yeah. the the passing of that that long fine flash, and that ends essentially the first half of the book. There's a definite division where there's definitely more comedy and upbeat hijinks in the first half, and in the second half we really start sliding into the '70s, a okay. much more oppressive, paranoid, anxious sort of um environment yeah i will say for the for the the, speaking specifically in the movie now like the passage of time was was not all that clear to me i mean we'll get to it but you mentioned that this was born out of two different trips to vegas and this the where that kind of made sense to me was we have the scene when um Duke is leaving his hotel. He's trying to just skip town and not pay the bill, right? And then because he knows Dr. Gonzo has already left, and he gets a telegram from from Dr. Gonzo uh, that's meant for Thompson, not for Raul Duke. Mm-hmm. But then he just, like, goes around and he goes to a new hotel and Gonzo's already there. It's like, what? I, we just saw him getting on board a plane. And it's like, it's really kind of confusing. It makes sense to learn that this was two different trips because it just, like, as the movie together, I don't want to say it doesn't work, but it's just, um, it just feels kind of odd, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's one of those weird wrinkles that you can get away with in the text a little more easily than you can in in the film adaptation yeah but it's got to be right he's got to walk into that suite at the flamingo and see christina ricci whacked out on drugs trying to bite his ankles off yeah i, I guess I mean, <laughs> we have to go there we are of course overlooking the um the cameo of uh oh what's his name um it's right on the tip of my tongue gary Busey. oh yeah I for, first of all it it, it took me a while cuz when he first cuz yeah he pulls him over but there's this long thing that was kind of amusing about how you know if a cop's trying to pull you over what you what you shouldn't do is just pull over immediately you should instead speed up because they'll follow you and they'll be happy to follow you and then you'll throw on your blinker and then <laughs> which lets them know that you're just looking for a place to pull over and then, then he does like a high speed, ninety degree turn and stuff. And it, yeah, anyways, this is Gary Busey 
First of all, again, we were talking about Benicio Del Toro gaining weight. Gary Busey is uh, packing some extra pounds in this movie. Yep. But yeah, it is great to see great to see Gary Busey here. Yeah, that that sequence about like uh, how to deal with with the highway traffic cop hits a little bit differently in 2022 than it perhaps would have in in 1971. I don't know. Uh, just just with all the all the police violence stuff that's that's floating around in the yeah I th- I mean but is is there truly more now than there was then I don't I don't I think there's an argument to be made that there probably is just as or the same amount or there's even less now than there used to be but I mean bottom line is I just found that scene amusing it was just kind of oh like, yeah because <laughs> he's just doing everything wrong and and you're right yeah. you would never want to do this with an actual cop because right. they might <laughs> yeah. try and <laughs> and not only that blow but your like, head what? off is it because he does eventually pull over but he's got like a car full of narcotics and everything like he <laughs> just yeah like like, the, like you'd think it, it would almost make more sense for him to just try and get away exactly yeah and like the he's he the conceit of the scene is that he gets out of the car and he's holding a half drunk can of beer yeah he's like yeah, yeah. oops <laughs> right um but yeah the uh the line in which officer Busey uh asks for a kiss yeah, is not in the original text of the book. What was that then? Why was that? Because that it didn't really elicit a laugh out of me. I'm not, I'm not really sure what that was doing there. I think it was Gary Busey being was, Gary Busey. It was an improv. And I think so. And okay. I, and Depp's reaction to that of just sort of looking off sideways, not quite at the camera, but just like okay, yeah. just at an angle to the camera. My understanding is that was just purely natural reaction. <laughs> As a Thompson scholar, I really enjoy the scene, the very, very brief scene where Thompson is freaking out in the phone booth and he's calling Acosta. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we get a glimpse into Acosta's office. Okay. And it is all like he's, he is like his hair is combed. He's wearing a nice shirt and tie. Like this is a lawyer's office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also like that's that's interesting too because we, we see that um... – Gonzo has a life outside of the chaos that we see, at least to a certain mm-hmm. extent. We never see any evidence that Duke does. So that's yeah. kind of interesting, just the difference between those two characters. And in what I was talking about earlier with, with Gonzo and, and Del Toro's performance, he's able to turn it on and off a little bit, like when he's acting crazy, just a little bit. Like he's mm-hmm. he's responsible is, is a weird word to use, especially when we get into the Christina Ritchie stuff. But he yeah. like is able to kind of be almost a caretaker at times, but no, no, it's 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 weird, right? Because perhaps even more so in the book, uh, because we don't ever see Doctor Gonzo in his office in the book, we, and we have it we have it visualized for us here. Doctor Gonzo is this this thundercloud, this this ominous, dangerous force of nature. Like like it, uh, Duke's character is wild, but Doctor Gonzo is dangerous in a way that Duke is not. And to to suddenly have that sort of that that impression of him sort of rattled by seeing him at his day job, it's it's an interesting touch. And mm-hmm. I like kind of like you, I don't necessarily know where I'm going with that or what to make of that, except just that it that it is an interesting touch, and it does very briefly sort of remind the viewer that there is there is a reality out there. Like this this experience in Vegas is not a a, a pocket dimension that is unrelated to the wider world as a whole. Well, it, at least it is for Gonzo. I'm, I'm still not sure. I mean, just watching this movie, obviously we know, I mean, you know a lot about Thompson's personal life, but, like, this seems to be all of what 
Raul Duke is basically because like he's he's talking about he's got the he's got the he's hired to write on the race and he didn't yeah, even yeah, watch the race like immediately after people start taking off he just goes inside and grabs a beer and then eventually yeah. he gets on gets in a car and they're like and they, you, you can't see anything like any of the actual race because there's just dust clouds everywhere it's like there's no real journalism going on i guess yeah for like um from his perspective so it's like this this really feels like this is all that he is interesting i hadn't thought about it in quite those terms but that's a that's an interesting way of of reading his his character so then i find it interesting right and and it's visualized in some interesting ways in this film we start looping back and rhyming with the first half of the film all of a sudden we have another convertible yeah. We're driving down the road in the convertible. We're on our way to a hotel. We're on our way to check in. Drugs are involved. The same furniture is all there, but the tone is very different, right? In the beginning of the film, there's there's a lot of warm reds and sort of earth tones, and like it's, it's, it's vibrant and, and welcoming in a weird way. And when we shift here to the scene of Duke driving back into into vegas in the white whale the the big white cadillac convertible like everything is sort of it's it's almost a little bit grainy it's a little bit sort of washed out in kind of a brown a little bit like it's it's it is not warm in the same way okay right and if we're if we're sort of tracking that like in mentally just as kind of a shorthand i think of it as you know the first half is fear and the second half is loathing okay which is not like i say that's shorthand that i, I wouldn't i wouldn't you know i wouldn't publish that anywhere <laughs> except <laughs> here <fair>. um <laughs> but but like there's it does kind of go back in terms of the, the way the film uses color to represent that sort of that sort of slide into something less pleasant less welcoming right there's there's something uglier going on here something more oppressive going on and then we get right into the christina ricci uh, lucy stuff which arguably is one of the most controversial elements of the film and also one of the most faithful adaptations of any sequence from okay interesting yeah yeah, so what's what's the deal with with Lucy here? I mean, she's she's does she's got hundreds of portraits of Barbara Streisand, which was kind of interesting, um, and she's on drugs, which you know you you don't say that about most every main character, I guess here, but <laughs> that's right. But yeah, what's what's her deal like? How old is she exactly? Because that's are you are you like in the film or in yeah yeah in like real how life old or... is she yeah how old is she supposed to be here because. It is almost impossible to say. Um, okay. We are, I think, I think we are very strategically never told. Oh, okay. Because, like, from an artistic point of view, right, having, having, basically having found an underage girl in the airport, given her drugs and taken her to a Las Vegas yeah, yeah. hotel room. Yeah, I get that. Which is what Gonzo does, right? That's, that is a, that is a genuinely horrifying thing. Mm-hmm. But we're not shown that, right? All we're shown right, in yes. the book and in the text is Duke just going back to Vegas and finding this situation. Yeah, she's already there. Was it consensual? You know, what, what's going on? I mean, can, can you even, can you have that kind of consent when you've been, you've never yeah, had a drink Yeah, does consent exist in, in this scenario? Probably right, not. Right, exactly. But, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, probably, yeah, probably not. And so now I will, I will say 
that the, in 2008, there was a, a documentary on Thompson, uh, Gonzo, The Life and Work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. It's a, a, an Alex Gibney film and came out in 2008. And alongside the documentary, Shout Factory released a number of audio recordings as the Gonzo tapes. And okay. these, uh, Thompson, one of Thompson's journalistic habits was to take a tape recorder with him everywhere. It, on, uh, there are a couple of tracks on, on these tapes in which Thompson, so not Duke and not Dr. Gonzo, right, right, but Thompson yeah, right. and Acosta talk about the girl. So there is some actual reality underlying this sequence. Okay. But exactly how much of that was genuine, uh, exactly what the terms of that were, it does seem that Acosta found a young woman at the airport and she joined him in some capacity. But there's okay, there's no sure. there's no there's no damning specifics or anything like that, right? It's impossible okay. to actually say what happened. But they do talk about the girl. Interesting. Yeah, I don't really want to think about it a whole lot more than that for no. obvious reasons, but as far as anyone can tell, that seems to be about as good an answer as you can get to the question of what's up with Lucy. Yeah. And I and I I don't want anyone to come away from watching this film thinking that Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo are uh, model characters in a new way Saints, that their behavior yeah, 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 yeah no you. not at all right there's like vegas itself right like like a lot of of what's going on in america at the time right there's some genuinely ugly things going on here oh yeah they um, dr- they drop her off at um the graceland chapel or something like that there's some kind of elvis themed wedding chapel <laughs> that's where they I ended think, up dropping her off. i think that's supposed to be like right across the street from the hotel that they okay. uh, are, are theoretically dropping her off. Okay. Um, but even that doesn't quite work, right? Because she remembers their hotel room number and she calls back. Yeah, and then, true. and that that is the adrenochrome sequence, the the, the terrifying drug substance that, that uh, Duke takes and just goes completely off his rocker for a while. Is this the one where he wakes up and he, this is the lizard tail? He comes, yeah, he comes out yeah, of that, when he comes, that yeah, adrenochrome yeah, okay. experience. So, yes, this predates the lizard tail, but only just. And yeah, this yeah. scene is really interesting. Like visually and in terms of practical effects, I think it is one of the most uh, engaging sequences in, in the film. Oh, for sure, um, yeah. Because like the room changes shape. It like mm-hmm. goes from being like a certain length from one end to the other, and then all of a sudden it's like three times that long. And you've got Nixon's head coming out of the TV. Yeah, the and you've got the lighting. Doctor was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That changes like like different lights come on at different points. The camera is always just sort of rocking back and forth, just yeah, enough. Yeah. Like, not quite enough that you would recognize it unless you were looking for it, but definitely enough to kind of work on your mind as sort of this mm-hmm. back-and-forth kind of nauseating weirdness. And then Dr. Gonzo mutates into some kind of hideous beast monster with the yellow eyes and, you know, yeah. six breasts coming out of his back. And, yeah, it's 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 a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Sure, yeah. Is there anything we really do need to say about uh, Christopher Maloney as the desk clerk here? No, other than that's an amusing scene. I think I mean, it goes on for quite a while, but it's 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 kind of an interesting. I I guess we're going to end up talking about it quite a bit um, here, but because this is the police officers, or what what is it? It's a convention for is it sheriffs or chief, police chiefs or whatever district attorneys, but district yeah. attorneys, excuse me, but but well, district attorneys, you know, colloquially we call them cops and stuff, right? Yeah. 
but this this scene is is like a um great depiction of what happens when a cop doesn't get his way <laughs> and he's just yeah. freaking out at the guy and yeah. uh so i think there's like some you know modern relevance to a scene like this but that's enjoyable this is another i can't really say cameo because i don't know if this guy's famous i don't really know what his name but he's just a character actor who's in everything but he's the um ace ventura with snowflake the dolphin he's that that's what i think of him for oh in the, um is this the the drug expert bloomquist not the guy presenting i'm talking about the guy mm. yelling at christopher maloney the guy oh, okay. presenting gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. is michael jeter who is the clown from Airbud, and oh, he's also yeah, in jurassic yeah. park 3 oh that's right that's and he's right, in the right, green right, mile right. i think he's i think he's the one with the rat in the green mile yeah, I, I absolutely got a kick out of um, watching uh, Law and Order SVU. What's what was what was his character's name? I've never seen the show really. I just okay. He's yeah, he's on one there. of the he's one of the boss cops for the first. Earlier this season, we did Ghoulies, which features Mariska Hargitay. So we've now had both there you go actors from SVU in in movies on this podcast. But yeah, Michael Jeter's character, the drug expert, Elron. I think they call him Bumquist here. A kind of a mashup of Elron Hubbard and Dagwood Bumstead, but okay. uh, he's he's um, Thompson uses the real like he's he's a real person, um, not by oh, that yeah. name, um, right? But his Tom the, the the original text has the real name of this character and like all that stuff that he talks about, like about the four states of being in the cannabis community yeah. and all like the stuff that's just really really comes across as something that Thompson would have made up as satire. It's all a hundred percent real. It's, it's very reefer madness like that this is this is what we need to focus on the these this is how these drugs are dangerous and it just doesn't jive with what we actually know yeah and there's even the scene where they're, they're talking about you know this this end of a joint or whatever is is called a roach because it resembles a cockroach and Benicio del Toro's like it looks nothing like a cockroach yeah. or something there is a book it's called marijuana and the second edition is called uh, the second edition is called the, 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 the it's like marijuana the second trip or something something equally okay. <laughs> ludicrous, but yeah like I've I have found that line in there where this guy talks about they call it a roach because it looks like a cockroach that's that is that is a verifi- verifiable thing that a doctor of medicine believed and presented <laughs> to the district attorneys in 1971 and it's just it is just Thompson is credited with writing. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as brilliant satire. And so much of what he includes in there is not Isn't so much incidented satire, satire yeah. as he just picked the right details. You could you could say kind of there's a satirical tone surrounding the stuff that was actually real, maybe you could say, but Yeah. Oh, for sure. There's no way to verify it, but I, I am I am quite confident that Acosta probably said something exactly like what he says in the film. <laughs> course, You'd have to yeah. be crazy on acid to think that looks like a cockroach. Now this this scene was confusing to me because is he is he there? Is Duke there to cover this? event as this conference as a journalist because i feel like that wasn't really communicated and that's that's the frame right? but in real life telegram thompson was yeah yeah you know the the frame story here is that you know he's he's there to to cover the drug conference but that never resulted in any like there's no there's no hunter s thompson on the drug conference in vegas article that would that ever came out of this in the way that strange rumblings in aztlan his his article on the murder of Ruben Salazar was sort of adjacent to his first trip to Vegas. Okay, but that's yeah. His his takedown of the drug conference shows up in Fear and Loathing. 
we talked about the adrenochrome scene already, but that uh, the drug conference stuff that immediately precedes that in the in the hotel suite, and then after the adrenochrome sequence and the various flashbacks with the hotel maid and the lizard tail, and the the, the suite tail. is just absolutely destroyed, and mm-hmm. the weird ape at the circus circus or bazooka's circus in the film, yeah. right? The the last. Uh, six or seven chapters of the book are basically just the the film just goes through them pretty quickly as sort of flashback scenes yeah the the film kind of goes off the rails a little bit at the end because the book like you were saying earlier right there's not a whole lot of plot to give us uh, a narrative structure for the end of this film it's yeah well it's it's not it's i said it didn't really have a plot it's maybe it's not so much it doesn't have a plot but it it certainly doesn't have a conventional structure. It doesn't have an A, B, C. It yeah. has barest structure. It has is it's it's kind of a road movie, but that's really mm-hmm. well. It it becomes episodic, right? Like you yeah, have, episodic is a great word. Yes, it's a, you have the the smashing the coconuts briefly. You have like the stuff with the ape in in the circus casino, and then you have possibly the the ugliest. With the possible exception of Lucy, right? You have one of the ugliest scenes of the film where they're in that that diner on the crappy end of town and they're threatening the waitress. Yeah. First, Dr. Gonzo hands her a napkin. I can't remember what the napkin says exactly, but it was basically... Backdoor beauty. Yeah, that's what it was. was, He's sexually harassing her. Mm -hmm. And then when she stands up for herself... This is all Gonzo. Raul Duke just stays there. He's he's watching. He's like like kind of interested, but he he's not doing anything. It, it, this is all a Gonzo, and this is horribly uncomfortable as hell. Along this, mm-hmm. he he um disconnects the phone when she says she's going to call the cops and stuff, and it's like this is. And I'm thinking too, in in the days before cell phones and stuff, if you were her, if you were in that situation, this would be the most terrifying thing. I mean, it's uncomfortable enough to watch it on screen, but like I'm I'm picturing being in that scenario and it's just oh my god yeah, yeah. What, what are you gonna do this is the loathing part like i, I mentioned that in that shorthand that well it's I had fear for her fear and, but yes yeah well but but like <laughs> yeah like chopping it up right you know fear fear can be fear can be fun fear can be entertaining right and the first half of this film that's what hellfest is all about antics. yeah exactly <laughs> um but the the loathing really comes through here this is this is pure ugliness and oh, you have that you have Gonzo's active ugliness threatening the waitress and Duke's sort of passive just mm-hmm. we're going to watch it right and there's that there's that really pathetic gesture of sympathy at the end where he's like he's going to be a dick and will like walk out with a plate full of food and then he oh, yeah. like thinks better of himself and turns around and like leaves the plate on the table like yeah. that's somehow going to like that makes a difference help yeah. right like or that's yeah. like he's it's like saying okay it's it's okay we're not kind of the emotional tenor of that scene is the is is final in a way right and in, in the film we jump right into the la- the final sequence right where where duke takes guns out of the airport and then leaves town mm-hmm. basically it it is striking and it is deadly serious and grim and ugly in a way that certainly nothing in the first half of the film is and very little in the second half of the film is with, the, with again with the possible exception of the lucy yeah, uh, yeah. Sequence, right? It's like it's almost like like they talked about doing ugly things to Lucy or uglier things to Lucy, um, mm-hmm. and here here it happens, right? They, they yeah, go overboard. There's more implication with Lucy, and there's more aggression, I guess you could say, in this scene. Yeah, and it is uncomfortable in in a way, a little different from the Lucy stuff, but yeah, but equally uncomfortable, maybe even dare I say, more 
uncomfortable. Yeah. This scene was really got under my skin. Yeah. And it's weird that, like you were saying, we, we kind of, I'm trying to remember exactly, but isn't that the, like the very next scene or it's a, it's a scene or two later where he's rushing him to the airport? It's I think it's the very next scene. Basically, it's it's another yeah, one of those. Yeah, and it's like a it's like a comedy scene because he he's like oh, I've never been late to the airport, and he drives through like all these fences. He literally drives onto the runway, and it's, and it's like a comedy scene. Like talk about a total tonal shift. It's well, it's just there's a little weird. bit of stuff in the middle there, right? Because in between the end of the diner scene and when they that that moment where it's like I've never missed a plane yet. There is just maybe a minute's worth of of them driving around like mm-hmm. the crappy end of Vegas. And like there's there's clouds yes, in the sky. Yes. There are these these all like rotten like old Yeah, cuz I think they said the diner hotels. the diner is in like the north side of Vegas which they describe as the shitty part, you yeah. know, I don't know. Yeah. Exactly, but well, yeah. Well, and then Lucy shows up again. Yes. Lucy like they they you know, they're also, driving is this around. when they run into Tobey Maguire again? They... That's in the middle of the film. They run into him in Baker. Oh, was it? Mm-hmm. Okay, I thought they ran into him here because, okay, never No, mind. but but it's it's the same kind of thing, right? Where the, the uh-huh. ghosts are coming back to haunt them. And, like, Lucy Lucy is disheveled. She's carrying, like, her, her paintings of Barbara Streisand under her arm. She's mm-hmm. She looks like she's been through the mill. And she just sort of lurches out into the middle of the road in front of this car. And the look that she gives them is just terrifying. Mm -hmm. totally accusatory like you know she knows what they did (laughs) and i i agree that the the transition back into comedy the both the musical cue and the whole like i've never missed a plane yet and we're gonna go driving across the road like that that shift is jarring and problematic um but it's it's there's a little bit of that connective tissue in between where the ghosts pop back up and they're driving through this purgatorial hellscape yeah yeah that's fair Purgatorial hellscape. Talk about mixing my uh, mixing my afterlife. There. <laughs> Talk but, uh, about it implicating our next film too. Yeah, right. But again, more more hellfest stuff. But yeah, then we get you know there's this goofiness about you know driving the car over the tarmac and Gonzo gets on the plane and roars off into the sunrise. And I enjoyed how no one at the airport like acknowledges that this is weird. Like especially when they cut back to his car and it's just got like fence posts all over it. Like that was kind <laughs> yeah. of just a funny visual. Yeah, like like I mentioned earlier, like if you try and screw with a highway traffic cop, you're gonna get your head blown off. Here, they would uh, like. Well, this is pre nine eleven, of course. Right, exactly. No, this yeah, is this very... would have been seen as weird even back then. I'm right, sure. Right. Yes, yeah. You can't the... just drive onto an airport. Yeah. Uh, apparently, something like this did happen, although I doubt it was with quite as much fence posts and bits hanging off. But uh... and then of course we get the the kind of the, the parting moment with Duke and Gonzo, and Gonzo's getting on the plane, and uh, there's the famous line about uh, there he goes, one of God's own prototypes, too weird to live, too rare to die. That doesn't show up in the book at all. That's from a different. Uh, Interesting. Okay. That's from a different. That's, that's actually from. It, um, it's Thompson's, Thompson's words, but it's in something else. Yeah. It's, okay. It's I was going to say because that sounded like Thompson. I, it's hundred percent Thompson, that. but it's from a, a much later piece. He's, it's kind of an obituary for Acosta, who disappeared oh, so under it was, mysterious. It was regarding him. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was talking about him, but but Acosta disappeared under mysterious circumstances, and uh, nobody really knows what happened to him. And Thompson wrote sort of an. Uh, an obituary of sorts for him and that's where that line is drawn from but then in the end we finally get some rolling stones we get jumping Jumpin jack, jack flash, flash which i have to say i wish there was more rolling stones music in this film if the beat generation Never been one of my favorite songs by them by the way the, the oh, yeah. rolling stones are my favorite band and it's not 
you know, it's it, it, I don't think it's in my top 20 songs by them. Even really? of like the f- more famous ones cuz they have some great uh deep cuts that, you know, just a casual music listener might not be familiar with Moonlight Mile. I think that's like one of their two or three best songs, but like sure. even of the of the hits like uh Gimme Shelter, Sympathy for the Devil, like there's a lot of better songs than Jumpin' Jack Flash in my opinion. That is that is entirely fair. I <laughs> I think I think it's the perfect choice for sort of this ending visual here just driving out of town like it's got the right sure. it's got the right stuff to be this song um, <laughs> and it doesn't need to carry any weight like I, I wish they would have used sympathy for the devil in, in the beginning right because yeah. it, it that alongside brewer and shipley's one because that is a the thematic line, yeah that would it, have a thematic purpose this this here doesn't really have a thematic purpose but it has a feel yeah it's a tonal it's, purpose maybe. exactly that's that's exactly right and i think it works fine for the for the tonal purpose I heard somewhere I, at this point in my in my scholarship, right, a month out from my dissertation, I can't remember from day to day whether I've said something or someone else has said something. I have it in my head that the the beat generation was jazz, and Thompson was rock and roll, and okay. so to to have this film end with that song, yeah, that's okay, that's okay. Like the, some of the other songs okay, over sure. the credits, like the cover of Viva Las Vegas, it's like that that yeah. that totally kind of misses the point of some of the more literary depth that this film could carry. Now, of course, you know if they ever do a remake, they're going to have to use uh, "High" by Sir Sly. As far as I'm concerned, that's that's the one for for this particular property. But now, and I, I said that specifically because I want this out in the universe. Somebody somewhere is going to hear that and think, "Aha!" Okay. <laughs> well, you you apparently have a higher expectation of our audience than I do. <laughs> so, what did you think of this movie overall? I think it's probably about the best you're going to get for an adaptation made when it was. Okay. Sure. And I, I think now in the in the 90s Hunter S Thompson was co- sort of he, he he existed in the general popular consciousness as sort of oh he was a thing coming out of the 60s and then he got goofy and then he he kind of became a cartoon, right? And he actually yeah. literally became a cartoon with Uncle Duke and Doonesbury which Thompson hated, right? And then okay. you had um you know there there's he's he's a joke. Right, he's, he's there's the, the Bill goofy. Murray movie, which yeah. is not a well-regarded movie. You you mentioned it earlier, but yeah, there there are some I've people who will it. say that 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 the Bill Murray film is more true to some of the literary elements of Hunter S. Thompson than this one is. I I don't I don't see it. It's a fine performance because Bill Murray is a good actor, but sure, I, I, as as an adaptation of what Thompson is in in a literary sense, I, I don't think where the Buffalo Roam really holds a candle to this. Okay, if if something like this were to be made again, you know, after after Thompson's death, after at at this point in 2022, we've had about 10 years of something of a renaissance in in academic attention to Thompson, right? The the field is, is starting to coalesce and mature. And I think if you were to have this remade now, you would have more attention paid to elements that get a bit of a, a short shrift in this adaptation. Nobody is going to be marketing the future adaptation of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as a goofy buddy comedy the way that okay, sure. Johnny Depp and Del Toro's version is, right? I think people right. are going to be smarter about The poster of that. the movie and, yeah. and the images of um, Johnny Depp with the cigarette, like chewing on that cigarette thing and mm-hmm. just kind of like a goofy smile. A future version of this might might be better in terms of how it's how it's conceived, how it's marketed, how it's how it's handled. But I don't know 
that they would be able to capture the same kind of performance, right? That like the one that Johnny Depp gave, right? Johnny Depp lived with Thompson. He he. Well, yeah, you you that, you don't have that possibility anymore right. with a newer actor. Exactly. He 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 can't go to Thompson and exactly uh, learn from him. Folks, if, if you're out there listening and uh, however many years from now, um, track me down. I'm happy to consult on the film for a fee. <laughs> Give me a call and offer money. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it would be interesting to see the how some of the different creative choices were made. Either way, though, it's got to have more Rolling Stones as part of the soundtrack. That's non-negotiable. Okay. What about just like as a movie itself? Because you're, you're doing a lot of talking about it as an adaptation. Yeah. And I agree, it's probably, from what I remember of Thompson and from what I know of him, regardless of how well I remember Fear and Loathing, not an easy author to adapt, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that this is, in its creative choices, probably a very good adaptation. But just as as a movie, though, what, what are you thinking? I think as a movie— Because I, I still don't really know what to make of it. Yeah, I don't I don't know how it works as a movie. I, I, my my okay. instinct gun to my head, I would probably say it doesn't work as a movie because— as cultural commentary, it's not—it's not really clear what it's commenting on. Yeah, I was going to say you see—you see an American flag so frequently in this movie that's clearly a choice. That's clearly like just walking around with an American flag. I think the American flag might fall in the bathtub at some point, but there's especially as the movie went on, there's more and more flags, and it's like they're—it's some—they're—they're they're trying to do something here, but it's never really clear what. Right. Like if 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 something in this movie was set up to be clear that this was kind of a eulogy for the 60s uh, right at the, on the cusp of the 70s, right? Like if, if somehow Nixon and what he represents is more of a uh, an entity in an adaptation, maybe that makes more sense, right? Maybe that sets a clearer stage. At least people are going to know what they're getting into. It also makes it weirder, you know, I mean, the movie came out in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of have to defend it as being relevant, you know, if, yeah. for lack of a better uh, term. Like, because the, when the book came out, this was a current thing. And then... Mm-hmm. The film, it by no means is. I mean, you can maybe draw parallels to the world of today, which we've done a little bit of here and there. But like as a narrative, the 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 familiar markers of a narrative aren't there. As as a narrative film, or as or as a like a historical document, it doesn't quite work because we're kind of removed from that in yes, ways that the yes. film doesn't respond to. And then, like, as an art film, it's so tied to a specific moment in history that it doesn't really sort of kind of achieve that sort of, um, oh, I don't know what the word is, uh, but it, it, it's, it's held back by being tied down by the history and the lived reality okay. of, of the film. So, like, purely on its own merits, th- this film makes the most sense when you have read the book and know a thing or two about the author. And without that, sure. it is it is it is an oddity, and it is sometimes an entertaining oddity. But oh, I don't yeah. think you walk away from that thinking like, damn, I want to go run out and buy the Criterion collection of that. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And, and I mean, just for me, as uh, watching it, certainly with f- far less knowledge on Thompson, but at least a little bit of knowledge on him, I will say as a movie, it kept, it kept my interest. It was... It, it was interesting. It was relatively entertaining. It made me feel horrifically uncomfortable for most of the movie, sometimes in a way that felt not quite profound, but almost there. Like, I could see maybe something, I don't want to say, like, a better filmmaker, because Terry Gilliam is a pretty good filmmaker, from what I understand. But, like, I feel like there were some scenes here that, if they were done in a different way, could have had, like, a profound effect. Yeah. And and I'll say like I said it makes yeah it makes me feel uncomfortable. That's not always a bad thing. 
Mm-hmm. It's a bad thing in terms of I'm probably not likely to watch this movie again anytime soon. But that's you know that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it or, or that it's a bad movie or anything. But sure, I mean that kind of discomfort. Uh, sometimes I look for that in certain types of movies. I don't typically look for it in my comedies. Mm-hmm. I understand this isn't a, a comedy with a capital C, right? You know, it, this isn't a Jim Carrey vehicle, but oh jeez, I don't know. <laughs> it's just um, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. Well, I, it's, and I, it's I a think, weird experience. I think that's part of what led people to dislike the film so much on release right it's it's sort yeah, of become this a cult not classic, successful when it came but out, i think it yeah. became a cult classic because the people who are going to be into the cult classic aspect of it are people who are going to be more familiar with the with the author but if you market this as a as a buddy comedy and the second half of your film is oppression grimness kidnapping a 14 year old right girl yeah and yeah, you know yeah. talking about sex trafficking an underage girl and then you wind up like Oh, it's a buddy comedy, and and our our final like real sequence before the end is is brutalizing, emotionally brutalizing uh, a waitress. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, so I I like the film. I, this sounds like a cop out, but I like the film for professional reasons. Okay, um, sure. And there are there are some things um, that are adapted just so well in this film that I that I can't help but appreciate it. But this is not like. This is not something that I'm going to queue up for movie night for just a random collection of people without first making them sit through a 20-minute lecture on the, the, the history of Fear and Loathing okay, in Las that's Vegas. Okay, that's probably fair. <laughs> if you're ready, let's talk about another film that should have some kind of lecture on the yeah. importance of... Um, you know, this Hellfest was also uh, based on a novel. Was that's, it really? That's a lie. I, no, I was no, going to say not. That's, <laughs> it's, just, it's just popped up as a screenplay at some point. Yeah, Hellfest is. I have mixed feelings on this movie. This is. I do enjoy it, but this is like a. It's, I guess you could say it's a guilty pleasure. To me, it's really close to being like a genuinely pretty good movie. Hmm. And let's start off first. All uh, first of all, Brick. I am a slasher fan. I have no reason to believe necessarily that you are. I don't know. My familiarity with the genre is is limited, and it is limited to sort of the obvious Halloween, entries. Nightmare on Elm Street. Right, right. Like I have, I have Friday the Thirteenth. Fond, maybe, yeah. fond memories of being like a sophomore in college and watching Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time and just laughing my ass off with the the wobbly arms that oh uh, the wobbly arms the, the, of like all of a sudden his arms are like nine times longer than they should be and they're just doing yeah. this like rubbery wiggle thing like something out of an early yeah. like Max Fleischer early Disney cartoon whatever and it's just a lot of my enjoyment of the genre comes from when I saw it or who I was with when okay, I saw that's it that's fair um, but in terms of like deeper cuts or or films like this. Not yeah. something I have a whole lot of, of right. familiarity with. Well, this this movie, it came out in 2018. It came out when I was living in Canada. I saw this, I don't think quite on opening night, but definitely like opening weekend. And it was a completely empty theater, basically. <laughs> this movie did not do well when it came out. It made a profit, I'm pretty sure, but it's so hard for horror movies not to make a profit. Sure. Like They envision this as having like a sequel every year, and obviously we haven't gotten to Hellfest 2 yet. Yeah. I think there's potential for a cult audience for a movie like this, not unlike Fear and Loathing, but there's like a, especially if it sticks around Netflix still. I mean, I know it's very easy to just kind of lose movies that are on Netflix because there's so much stuff there, but you know, it's the horror movie. I think it's the, the, the being set on Halloween, I think 
has the potential to to lure people in kind of annually kind of yeah. thing and and like I this this chance this movie kind of gets more popular in the future than it is now but as it is now I remember I was excited about this when I excited about this movie when I saw the trailer might have been the only person on earth who was actually excited about this but I saw the trailer and I'm like okay that's a fun setting for a slasher movie mm-hmm. and and of course I like slasher movies but then I saw it's like okay rated R and I'm thinking if this movie came out five years or so before it came out it wouldn't have been rated R it would have been PG-13 mm. and it would have it probably and it would have been worse because you have the 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 slasher genre has kind of gone in spurts and we're we're kind of in a uh, I guess kind of a revival of the slasher genre now with the Halloween series back mm-hmm. being back, the Scream series being back, yep. Chucky being on a TV show. Mm-hmm. But you have your original slashers, which kind of peaked in the early 80s. They started fading a tiny bit, and then Nightmare on Elm Street came out, and then that kind of kept it going through the end of the decade. And then once the 90s come along, even the legacy series were running out of gas. Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, bad movie. Halloween 6, joke of a movie, yeah. and, uh, you know, Jason goes to hell the final Friday. Not that great. Um, and then Child's Play 3 sucks. But then Scream comes out, and Scream reinvents the slasher genre. Now it's modern and hip and self-referential. And then I think Scream was kind of originally planned as like, a, okay, we're, we're finishing this genre once and for all, but it was really popular, so it's back all of a sudden. Is that what you have to do and when then, your content runs out? Like, do you have to go meta and a little bit, like, postmodern with it? Is that, like, the natural progression? Maybe, because you get the revisionist westerns and stuff and, like, Unforgiven, which I wouldn't say is, like, a meta movie, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a postmodern in the sense that it's commenting on the genre, I think. And, and I mean, westerns are essentially dead. Yeah. But can I say I love that Hellfest isn't really meta. Because in my opinion, the the meta-ness has just worn out. I'm sick of it. I've seen it in everything. And it's just as tired as as the pre-meta horror movies, slasher movies were. Yeah, I I went in kind of expecting that, right? Yeah. I think the last, like, big-budget slasher film I saw was... uh, I think it might have been Scream 4... I think that's the last like big budget one that I saw that was at least kind of coming out fresh. Okay. So yeah, I, like I said, I was I was going in expecting more of that meta because that's certainly what kind of Scream is built on. I think I realized maybe halfway through, I'm like, oh yeah, I had this preconception about the film, and mm-hmm. it's not there. <laughs> and and I, if you haven't seen as many, I mean, maybe you've seen a couple Scream movies, but I've seen so many of the... Because, like, when Halloween comes out, Halloween has its own rip-offs and knock-offs, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call them. And then when Scream comes out, it's got its own kind of imitators and these Scream-inspired movies. And I always talk about this because they all have the exact same poster. You can look it up. Every horror movie that came out after Scream had, like, the four or five people standing, looking at the camera in, like, an arranged position. Every single one of them looks at, like, the faculty, <laughs> urban legend, all these other movies. It's, it's, it's a Final Destination has that. Mm. I, I think over time those movies became less violent. And I'm thinking, like, because I think then you get, like, The Ring and you get kind of the rise of PG-13 horror. And at any rate, I mean, it's just a different world that we're living in the late 90s, early 2000s than it was in the early 80s when you could have some weirdo Italian slasher movie that 
comes out and is popular in the U.S. Like, there's just, like, some varying levels of, like, violence and stuff. And I think think so the reason kind of the post-Scream movies start to kind of get boring to me is, well, one, they kind of all feel the same. But then, two, they don't really deliver on kind of the things you expect out of the genre. And then, I guess, due to the rise of PG-13 horror, due to found footage, whatever, we kind of lose the slasher again. Scream 4 was like a just almost an anomaly when that came out. Yeah. And then but now it's kind of coming back because we got Halloween which came out like 2 weeks after this movie or whatever and I just want to say this movie botched its release date. It, you know, it's it's 2018. It's it's set on Halloween. It came out in like September 29th or 26th or something. Mm. And I think that's part of why it didn't do that well at the box office because I think I remember thinking about this because again Halloween came out a few weeks later. If you want to maximize a Halloween box office, you don't want to come out the week of Halloween because then you're looking at a dip. You know, if, yeah. if you're like a Halloween type, you're going to look at a dip no matter what, you know, your second week. Yeah. I think your your probably best bet is to go like the week before Halloween. Therefore, you're looking at a big weekend and then hopefully still a very big weekend the second weekend because it's Halloween. You don't want to come out a month early. No. Like, what are you doing? Because you're old news at, by Halloween. This movie wasn't in theaters, I'm sure, at Halloween at most theaters. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to point that out because that angered me when, when I found <laughs> out when this movie was being released. I'm like, what are you doing? They probably didn't want to compete with Halloween, though, too. Yeah. I, I there, there are probably some very, very good reasons for that sort of thing. Like, industry reasons about how many films it's showing. Yeah. Like, distribution kind of stuff. Like, that, that's the sort of thing that makes me think that it has more to do with the, the legalese of releasing a film than, uh, <laughs> I don't know, some some bean counters screwing up. But, yeah, it, I, I would agree. Like, if there's, if there's a time to release it, the sweet spot is, like... Right days, in the middle 14, of October, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You got to get it. You got to, because then you avoid October that second week 19th dip. Release. And, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and not to be too like Midwestern regional about it, but like it doesn't always feel like October on at the in the last week of September, right? Like maybe in your yeah, head, you know it's that, coming. That will differ depending on where you are yeah. in the country. Because I mean, there's parts of the country that never feel like they're October. If you're in San Diego, it's just the same temperature year round. Yeah. There, you know, I mean, like what? Yeah. I myself don't get in the mood for a, a good like slasher horror kind of film until like you, you've hit that critical difference in the quality of the air where it's, it's just cool enough. Okay, and sure. there's, there's that, like that, that smell of leaves on the air and it's got that crisp kick to it. Right. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get that in late September as often as you would. In the middle of October. And it's interesting you mention that, because this movie, I have no reason, or I, I have no idea if this was filmed around Halloween. I'm assuming it probably wasn't, but I don't know. But it's filmed in Georgia, and Georgia's a big state for a lot of people to film at. They're filming at Six Flags Over Georgia, which is, um, or they're specifically the water park of it. I think it's like Six Flags title or something. I don't know. It has some name to it, but I looked at that, and I'm like, oh, that must be the water park of Six Flags Over Georgia. But... Yeah, it doesn't, like, despite, obviously, the setting of the movie, we, we have these, like, haunted house mazes and stuff like that, it doesn't really feel like autumn to me, and maybe that's, I'm sure it's just because it's in Georgia, mm. but yeah, I, I don't have experience of what autumn feels like a whole lot outside of the northern United States and southern Canada, I guess you could say, but 
Yeah, I, you don't see a whole lot of leaves or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you see any. Yeah, like one or two scenes contextualizing it, right? If like there's just like a shot, an establishing shot or something where you've got just sort of brown and yellow leaves swirling across the street, mm-hmm. right? Or something like that, right? That would, you don't need to overdo it, Yeah, right? it can be It doesn't simple. take much. Yeah, so this movie kind of, um, this is basically the plot of, uh, and I use the term plot loosely, but this is basically this plot of The Fun House, the Toby Hooper film, which is this is someone is killing people at an amusement park or a carnival. It's a carnival in the fun house. Yeah. Here, it's, you know, it's a Halloween horror maze kind of thing. And it's like um, they filmed it, as I understand, using like Fright Fest, you know, Six Flags Over Georgia decorations. That's what it said. It said they used mostly that. So I'm trying to find out, you know, when they enter mm-hmm. the maze, there's that big eye mm-hmm. um, standing up and kind of moving around. Like, is that at Six Flags over Georgia? Because that looks like an exact replica of the giant eye used in the Killer Eye, the David Dakota movie <laughs> from the late '90s. So I want to know yeah. if, that, if because that looks like an exact replica. Did they just, did did Six Flags just buy some Charles Band movie props <laughs> at some point? Maybe I know there's like a, a cottage industry on YouTube of people who will talk about the histories of amusement parks and like the oh yeah I've I've encountered some yeah of that stuff. Like the old defunct rides that don't exist anymore and a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if they're more recent attractions. A lot of those will have, like, they'll find somebody's home videos from whenever, and they'll, you know, they'll include <laughs> yeah. that footage. And so, I don't know, maybe maybe if you dig up the right stuff, you might be able to get towards an answer with that. But uh, Yeah, because I looked at, and I, I even looked at the IMDb, IMDb trivia on The Killer Eye, and it didn't have any trivia facts on that movie, uh. so it didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Um, anyways, so this movie, I, like I said, I don't think it's great, but I think it does a lot of things right. And I want to run those by you because, because I want to dissect this movie. Sure. I want to find out why it, it does all these things right. And it still, to me, isn't a very good movie. Dissecting a slasher movie is just, is spot on for the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the things it absolutely needed to do was make the horror mazes or the horror theme park feel authentic. To me, this pulls it off. I feel like it, it. this looks like a place I would love to go to. The mazes look like a lot of fun. Just the outdoor sections mm-hmm. where it's not really mazes and it's just people running around scaring people feel authentic. They have the people or they have one one of those guys which who kind of comes running in and like slides on the ground and has like a thing of metal on his hands and it sparks when he does that. That's uh, Those people are all over like Halloween Horror Nights and I think they were kind of originated at not scary farm in california so those are like frequent occurrences at these types of events and to me this felt very authentic and again a place i would love to go to i don't know about you but i have i have been (laughs) to exactly one haunted house in my life and i it was in uh it was in pittsburgh and okay. it was it was like less one house and sort of like a it was it was, there were like three different. Is it George Romero's house? <laughs> no, that'd be cool though. <laughs> it's it's really haunted. Yeah, right. <laughs> Tom Savini's just hiding back there, decapitating yeah. people. It was like it was like three. It was a, it was like one of those walkthrough things, but there were three distinctly themed areas. Yeah. So one of them was like, okay, yeah, yeah. One of them was like hillbilly hell, and then one of them was this weird. Mm-hmm. It was very it was very trippy. It was it was very uh, Thompson esque, right? But you'd have it was like. <laughs> 
There'd be, there'd be like the entire the room that's <laughs> there's the lounge lizard that, yeah. <laughs> that could easily be a scene in one of these yeah like there, there was the rooms that were all painted out black and they had like polka dots that were painted in fluorescent paint and then they'd have people who were in like black body suits with polka dots painted on them so that they'd like oh, fade into yeah, the background yeah. and then my only other experience was going to uh, Cedar Point in Sandusky Ohio for one of their yeah, there you go. He's wearing the Cedar Point shirt. Excellent. <laughs> um, but I was there for one of their Hollow Weekends, I think it was called. Yeah, I don't they, know they tried to. I them. went there this past summer, and they tried to recruit me. And if I lived anywhere near Ohio, I would have done it. It's funny <laughs> you say that it. because I, when I was young, I thought, man, working like the Halloween season as a scarer sound at like I, I don't know. I was what sixteen, seventeen. It, that sounded yeah. like the best job in the world. I'm sure there were hor- horrifically negative things about it too, but it, oh, it yeah. seems like it'll be. Some, like I, I seem fun. to recall that like you 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 live in a dorm basically, with a whole bunch okay. of other employees, and I'm sure the hours were crappy and what I, I don't mm-hmm. yeah the pay's not great I'm sure right but on the other hand you get to dress up like a freak and scare the crap out of people, <laughs> which yeah. as far as I'm concerned. The, the 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 that benefit outweighs any other potential drawbacks <laughs> at least when there. i was you know there. 16 17 um but but drawing on like those that's what was kicking around in my head when i was watching this and kind of drawing on that i thought this is this is perfectly passable as kind of that 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 specific level of it's like it's not it's not overdone it's not overdeveloped in that way like it doesn't look like mm-hmm. something out of hellraiser right but it it doesn't look cheap like like maybe it almost looks like the right amount of cheap yeah yeah it, it, everything seems like something that could be an actual amusement park doing this i yeah. think and i think that's important just for the uh lack of a better term realism i'll say you know and and um i think that this movie needed to accomplish that and they did because if it felt too over the top then you know it wouldn't be as scary i think not that this yeah. is the scariest movie ever or anything but you know, I, I think it kind of needed to get that right, and it did. I yeah. appreciate the amount of effort that they went into that. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know how much effort it actually was. This might be very similar to what uh, Six Flags Over Georgia is usually like for Halloween. Like I said, it probably isn't because I don't know if they shot this around October. They might, mm-hmm. they may have. It really works. Like some, some of the rooms and stuff are, are pretty cool they, because they've got the different themed mazes, right? The first mm-hmm. one they go to is deform school i believe was the name of it which is oh. a clever little name and, yeah. and that one it sounds like exactly the sort of thing that a theme park would come up with exactly exactly right. yeah but yeah so we've got like a a creepy school demonic school girl kind of maze we've got like kind of like a later on we get like a drug um, like a Hunter S. thompson maze where yep. there's just needles everywhere yep. that one's a little weird i feel like you probably wouldn't make a maze like that but i feel like the lawyers would step in on the liability issues there um i mean i some of it was pretty cool like uh, the way they did the they did the because they had flashlights and stuff and then someone one of the fake dead people on the ground who was really just an actor had like glow in the dark veins painted on them like that that was pretty cool so um, you know i think the difference for me is that like I'm, i'm not expecting this film to lean hard on the realism because it's okay. a slasher film, no, right? That's fair. That's like, fair. like I don't, I'm just saying. The, no, no, no. The, but what, the I'm, what I'm saying is, <laughs> what I'm saying is specifically is that like I, I don't need this film to come across as particularly realistic to enjoy the film. Sure. So what I get out of it from the way that they set these settings, these scenes, 
is this is the kind of thing I would be entertained by. Okay, at, yeah, at a carnival. Yeah, I think right? that's I think that's perfectly valid, and I yeah. think that speaks to um, maybe not how great this movie is, but that speaks to maybe just the validity of just you're having a Halloween party, throw this on. This is like a fun thing to have in the background, even if you're not really watching it. I think this movie has staying power in that genre of films, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So anyways, what what else does this this movie do right? The, The scene where the main character realizes something is amiss, I think is pretty well done. This is in the deformed school maze. So we've got this killer wandering around. He's got a mask. He's referred to in the credits as the other. The mask is kind of nondescript, almost like wooden-faced or wooden or rocky-faced kind of thing. But in the opening scene, which happens concurrently with the credits, he is wearing a different mask, and he murders a girl at a haunted maze attraction and then hangs her up with the props to kind of blend her in. And that's how the movie opens. And then eventually, you know, however many years later, our main characters are all at this Hellfest. And he shows up as well. He puts on his mask. He takes his he takes a knife from a snow cone vendor, which, yeah. <laughs> which is great. Uh, it's, it's not like a normal knife. Like normally you have like a hunting knife or a steak knife, butcher knife or something. No, it's like this knife that has like kind of jagged parts on it that are used for like shaving ice, I guess. Yeah. So it's kind of a unique, it's slightly unique weapon. I mean, it's it's really, it's just a knife, but. Right. Then, so, so the, so in deformed schools, so we have our main characters. We've got, we've got six characters here. We've got Natalie, who is, who is best friends with Brooke. And she is visiting Brooke. Brooke, these are college age kids. And then Brooke is dating Quinn, and Natalie is interested in Gavin, and Gavin is also interested in Natalie. Gavin is the one who gets them the VIP passes. Mm -hmm. Then our other two characters are Taylor and Asher, who are dating. Mm -hmm. Anyways, in, in, in Deformed School, it's Taylor, it's Brooke, and it's Natalie, and they're all there when a girl comes running in all scared and says, like, please help me, he's after me, and then she ends up hiding in this one spot. And then the killer comes in mm-hmm. and just kind of stares at them, and then, then they're just like, oh, she's over there, and they point to where she is, and then, then he gets her out and after, like, some dramatic pauses, eventually stabs her. But, it, like, what, what he does, what I think is neat about the scene is that the other two characters leave, and so it's just Natalie there, and Natalie is saying, well, just just do it, like, get it over with. Like, she's thinking, like, she's she's getting over the fear of these kinds of things, but then he does it, and then she just, like, she doesn't necessarily think someone has just died in front of her, Yeah. but she knows just something is not right about this guy, this actor, this worker here, who's not a worker, of course. I think that scene is really well done. I think they, I think they nailed the presentation of that scene. I think it's effective. I don't think it's, it's not, not saying it's like the scariest scene ever or anything, right. but it's well done. Well, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't overplay its hand, right? Yeah. It's it, kind of like what we were talking about earlier with, with the design elements, right? It's, it's a matter of balance when you're thinking about when kind of sort of what the audience is after or what the audience is taking away from this scene, particularly knowing that your audience is probably going to be at least reasonably well-versed in the genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't overdo it or saturate 
the viewer that the 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 audience in that moment with anything more than it needs to if that if that makes sense mm-hmm. i don't know if that if phrasing it that way makes a whole lot of sense but yeah well i i think it's kind of interesting just how it in a very very small way like almost put some blame on the main character in, in in a way that's interesting because um she's the one who sells out this girl that's hiding for her life i mean she doesn't obviously know she's doing anything wrong yeah but i think that's kind of an interesting aspect that you wouldn't see in a lot of movies like this where we're you know the the main character we want them to be blameless and we want them to be just totally good and stuff especially because this is a slasher genre so we've got the main character the final girl has to be this perfect virgin and stuff and it's like the movie they don't they, the movie kind of plays with that a, a little bit I, I don't think i don't believe virginity is ever mentioned specifically but yeah. she is at the time of going to this amusement park the only one who isn't in a relationship and they and all the characters are trying really hard to get her with gavin which happens eventually mm-hmm. until he's murdered <laughs> spectacularly <laughs> which leads me to my next point because there's some really good kills in this movie I mean, for what that is, I know that's not everybody's thing, but again, this is the it being rated R versus it being PG-13. They don't waste the R rating? They don't. It's not excessive. It's not Halloween Kills. Yeah. Halloween Kills has like seven or eight moments that are as brutal as the most brutal kill in this movie and then has them go on for longer. This isn't <laughs> that. I think this is like the perfect amount of just like, ooh, that was like cool, but you know, like I would like to see more of that, but yeah. And the big one, of course, is Gavin's death scene, which when I saw this in the theater, again, completely empty theater, I was pumped when that happened, too, because that's like the, well, the first kill we have is the opening scene, which is the nondescript girl at whatever other amusement park this is. Right. Second kill we have is in Deform School. Mm -hmm. It's the scene we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Third kill is the first one. It's a character that we care about. Right. First time it's a character that we know. And it's brutal. He, He gets... He gets one of those mallets from like the how strong are you thing for mm-hmm. those like where you hit on the bell. Uh, the killer hits him in the face with it first, which is like stuns him and he's like gargling. Like he's, I mean, the guy's concussed. I don't even right. know. Like disoriented. He's got pain. major issues just from that alone. Yeah. And then he kind of pushes him over towards that platform where you swing down the mallet, right? Whatever mm-hmm. you call that. Yep. And then he swings it down. And the head kind of explodes in like a bloody yeah. mess, and it's wonderful. I I'm I'm coming at this a little bit behind, right? Because I don't okay, have sure. Well, because I don't I don't have as much familiarity with the genre, right? So I I don't have a good measuring stick for for how quality okay. a particular kill is. But that one, um, it's creative yeah. though. It's, it's I haven't yeah. seen that specific thing before, and I've seen a right. bunch of horror movies, a bunch of slasher movies. This is something unique regardless of the execution i think the execution's good but just i love the creativity you know because most of the deaths in this movie are just yeah well most of the deaths (laughs) in this movie are just stabs to the stomach like that's what every death in every scream movie is like we've seen it all but i want i want a a unique killer too i think this movie delivers on that i'm given to understand that that uniqueness and spectacle are part of the currency of horror movies 
right? That's people like from, from the good ones. I, I've, yeah. I've, I've probably read more reviews of horror movies than I've actually watched. <laughs> okay. You know, or, you know, like, like Wikipedia write-ups or something. It's like, sure, Oh, that sure. looks interesting from 30 years ago. How did that, what happened in that film? Right. But that seems to be a, a fairly common thread is that it's the uniqueness in the spectacle, even though I don't have uh, a good, like I say, a good measuring stick or a good sense of what constitutes unique or spectacular. I feel like, there this the the film how do i want to say this like it 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 makes the most of its r rating without just becoming s- silly yeah cuz this death is like this death could be played more for comedy than it is especially because specifically when he hits down on the head the little ball goes up and he hits the bell like Ding. It, that he maxed out in strength but yeah. they don't really play, even though there that details there that's kind of a cute thing but they don't really play it for comedy like this it's brutal like it just yeah. watching him and I'm like okay and then again that it's a character that we like and i don't i don't think this has the best supporting cast of characters but i think there's everyone's like there's no one who's just awful you know and i and i i'll say another scene that made this effective is that i'm not surprised gavin died in the movie there's usually only one surviving female in movies like this I'm surprised mm-hmm. he died this early i'm surprised he's the first of the group to die because yeah, he is, is a that? genuinely good guy. I, I think that was just to kind of throw you off, and I think they pulled it off pretty well. Yeah. I, I, I was wondering if that was just to kind of break with form or if Maybe. there was some, like, crunchier narrative reason for, for him going out that early in the runtime. Yeah, because later on, the kind of his absence has the security guards thinking, okay, no, 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 he, someone's playing a prank on you but but it didn't have to be him it didn't have to be the boyfriend it could have been one of the other boyfriends right so yeah i don't know yeah. another thing that this movie does i'm gonna say it excels at and this might not mean anything to you as if you're not really a horror fan but a thing that i complain about a lot in horror movies is we are giving this role this cameo essentially to a person who is famous in horror movies and we are basically just going to waste them on one scene or a couple lines. We've got Tony Todd in this movie. Tony Todd, of course, is Candyman. He's basically wasted in a few of the Final Destination movies where he's like kind of the best part about the movie, but he just gets one scene and he's kind of pointless. And it's like, oh, <laughs> man, could we have gotten more of him? He's great. And here yeah. he's like the carnival barker who dresses like um, like a Mardi Gras kind of thing. And I'm not going to lie, it's not the biggest role, it's not the best role, but he's he's fun, he seems like he's having a good time. We hear his voice constantly because he's the announcer mm-hmm. on like all the, you know, this ride is broken down or whatever, he's, so we hear his voice constantly. But anyways, I didn't feel like he was a complete waste, I didn't feel like, it, obviously it wasn't a big role, I didn't expect it to be a big role, but I enjoyed him. Sure. There. But yeah. probably means yeah. nothing to you, but Tony Todd, <laughs> the great Tony Todd, it's yeah. good to see him. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's cool. It's it's good to know that um, that this sort of film will bring in that character, and like you say, not not just sort of waste them as um, set dressing or just give them a almost waste lines. them, but, but I'm oh, giving yeah, them a little yeah. little bit of yeah. uh, respect here. But but yeah, because that's like a box that you just tick if you're making a horror mm-hmm. movie. It seems like it's like we need like a legacy horror actor. We need a Jeffrey Combs or a Robert England or Barbara Crampton or somebody like we just need someone like that. And it bugs me because I feel like most of those actors are better actors than what we normally see them do, mm-hmm. but they're typecast because of what they're famous as. Tony Todd's a good actor. I would love to see him with more to do than he has here. Yeah. 
but I'm glad that he at least is doing something. So, anyways, what else does this what else does this movie do right? I I'll be honest, I don't think this movie does a whole lot that's wrong, even if I can't think of a whole lot that's like amazing. I mean, is it I have I mentioned this, but like are the supporting characters the best? No. Is the mm-hmm. final girl like the best? Like, nah, she's she's fine. Like a, a lot of a lot of passableness going on in this movie. Well, I have an idea that I wanted to run past you about this. All right. And I'm wondering if the setting elevates the material. Well, the setting is the material. I feel well, like you know what I mean. I guess that's kind of my. I guess that's kind of my point, right? Because we've been talking about all the things that this film does right, but we're we're we seem to be arriving at the conclusion that despite doing all these things right, it's not that great of a film. And, I, and right. I'm, I'm wondering if it's if it's specifically the kind of the dark carnival thing. Does a movie like this just have a hard ceiling that it can't pass? Maybe. Or like, I'm not the biggest fan of the Funhouse. I'll be perfectly or it, or honest. Or it's got a it's got a high base floor. If that oh makes maybe that, that sense. too yeah right like because you've got <laughs> like I was thinking because I do like love the, the idea um, of this setting. I, I love like kind of old timey circus imagery. I understand that's mostly right. not what's here, but there's a little bit of that with the Carnival Barker with Tony Todd and stuff. So yeah, I don't know. Well, right, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be old timey. Although I know that. Um, uh, is it Guillermo del Toro's most recent film is sort of that like oh Nightmare Alley yeah Nightmare Alley is it does the dark carnival thing of course there's um, a couple of different adaptations of Something Wicked This Way Comes Something by Ray Bradbury comes, yeah. right like um, there was that that TV show from way Penny back Dreadful? when no, I mean that's a good that's a good thing to add to this list but it was one of the seasons of American Horror Story is Freak Show. Right. Right, freak show from from American Horror Story. Like this seems which to be is heavily influenced by the 1932 film Freaks, which is mm-hmm. an incredible film. Mm-hmm. This this seems to be a a perennial evergreen field to tell this sort of story, and I'm I'm wondering if a sub 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 genre here of dark yeah. carnival amusement park type things. There's even a tiny bit of it in the movie Us, because mm. Us kind of starts out with the. Um, Funhouse, which you know at the Santa Monica Pier or whatever pier okay. it is, okay. And I mean, the, most of the movie departs from that, but the, it has that kind of the opener that's mm-hmm. sort of there. Well, but that I mean, you you see my point, right? Is that, mm-hmm. that I'm I'm wondering if if just the fact that it's a dark carnival film, even though it's more like a Cedar Point dark carnival than a mm-hmm. old timey yeah. carnival barker kind of thing. Sure. Like, I wonder if there's something about that setting that's just sufficiently attractive enough to cover over some of the some of the reasons that this film might not otherwise work right like if this is set in a mm-hmm. i don't know if this is set in a hotel or something then the things that we're identifying as good and fun about the film wouldn't look that way so much yeah because at the end of the day like what does this movie nail on a for lack of a better term technical level like the acting's mm-hmm. not great i don't think anyone is awful but i mean no one Ain't no one winning an Oscar for this, you know? I mean, again, <laughs> right. everyone's, everyone's fine, but yeah. they don't, you know, elevate the material. The scenes with um, Natalie and Gavin, I actually kind of appreciated this. It, they're, it's They're very, very, very clearly improv, and I would have been able to mm. say that long before I ever read the IMDb saying that the director encouraged them to improvise their scenes. But I like that because they're, like, awkward, uncomfortable, like, two people who are very into each other trying to catch up before they actually start making out kind of scenes. That felt natural to me as 
awkward improv as it is, where someone watching that, kind of regardless of context, could be saying, like, oh, the acting in the scene or the writing in the scene is awful. It's like, no, 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 but it's supposed to be, like, awkward and and uncomfortable. Like, it's kind of yeah. good. I, I like that. Yeah. Oh, Asher, by the way, another... Asher had a pretty fun creative death as well because, I mean, this may be fun is the, because this is one that I could see people not enjoying. Mm-hmm. I kind of appreciate it, but he gets stabbed through the eye. It's gross. I would say it's a lot more uncomfortable than the um, mallet scene just because it goes on a little longer and eye trauma. Let's be honest, yeah. eye trauma. It's not for everybody. That's that's exactly right. That's what I was going to say is like there are there is a certain class of violence that is just that just mm-hmm. comes automatically. Like it's it's almost Eyes like the, are like the 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 one, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's there's there's something about it that just automatically just gets you and eyes eyes are hmm. It's it's almost like it's it's easy. Like it's it's the a shortcut to some. I would say eyes and and groin injury on film are the two things that can yeah. really get to me. Like I I don't I've still never seen any of the Jackass movies. I'm not sure I want to. <laughs> the other thing for me, and I don't even know why I'm saying this, but the other thing to me is deliberate harm to the teeth. Like it's different if somebody Ooh. gets like smacked in the face or punched, punched right? Like their in tooth the face gets knocked out or something like out. that. But like if you are if you are intentionally drew, doing specific trauma to the teeth, okay. Uh-uh. No, I, I'm, I'm. I would no, have to I'm think of how that often that that comes up because I feel like not too often. Like, <laughs> a little shop of horrors, maybe, and that's about it. Like if, if you know if somebody's if somebody's got their victim's mouth open and they're just gonna they're gonna perpetrate violence like tooth by tooth or something. Okay. That I gotta I gotta check out. Oh that yeah, I, I guess I've seen I've seen some like pulling of teeth. I think that in one of the hostile movies, I think they pull teeth. But... Don't they do everything in the hostile movies? Like that's just they this, kind of they kind of do. Yeah, a dumpster I, for human depravity. <laughs> yep. Uh, anyways, so yeah, I guess another point for authenticity would be the the having to sign a waiver to move to the section of the park where they're allowed to touch you. I feel like that's mm-hmm. something that a lot of movies would overlook, but that is an authentic thing because there are like hardcore scare mazes out there. I've seen an entire documentary on these kinds of things. There's an mm-hmm. excellent documentary on, uh, it has been on Shutter, I believe it still is. It's called Haunters, the Art of the Scare. Is that the documentary where they talk about like, some guy signed up for something, and then like three days later, he got kidnapped and dragged out into the woods and buried in a yes, hole. Yes, that's that's the most extreme one they talk about. But yeah, Ugh. there's there's different types of um, haunted houses, and or, or mazes or whatever. And the yeah. the traditional one, the one that we see in the first the first section of the film, the one that most people are familiar with, you know, Halloween Horror Nights or whatever. Those are called boo scare mazes, or that's the colloquial term for them, and that's where people are allowed to scare you, but they're not allowed to touch you. Mm-hmm. And then there are really, 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 really extreme ones, including there was this one crazy guy who basically tortured people in his own backyard while filming it, and then months later would like send them an edited DVD of what they were going through. And basically he just went as long as possible just to like try and break them. I've heard, and he got he got a lot of exposure in that documentary, and I heard he's changed his ways a little bit since then, um, because I think he used to say, I think he, in that documentary, I think he's, he makes a point of saying he doesn't have a safe word. Now he does. Yeah, okay, yeah. good for him. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> but anyways, the whole the whole um, signing a, a a waiver, I think, is is a thing. A lot of movies would kind of overlook that, but yeah. really, if you're going into a scenario where 
people are going to be touching you in attempts to scare you, you there would be some kind of um, liability thing or something. Well, I, and from so a, like from that. a narrative perspective, it's a good way of raising the stakes. It like it it clarifies very mm-hmm. effectively for the audience that okay, we are you know the the we're changing the game. It's it's harder now to determine who's the killer and who's just a guy, especially mm-hmm. because this is the section of the park where they see that that mask is not, that's not the only time we see that mask. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people complain about jump scares. A lot of people just don't like jump scares. My co-host Jim has complained about them. I, I, I think there's a time and a place for a yeah. jump scare. And I think there's a difference between a good jump scare and a bad jump scare. But I'll say this, if you happen to be one of those people that hates jump scares, in most cases or whatever. I mean, this movie's got a a ton of jump scares, but I think it's all perfectly acceptable because this is exactly the environment where there are jump scares, like in real life. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of the movie... (laughs) <laughs> gives itself an excuse or justifies the jump scares i guess you could say yeah so there's uh, there's a reason there's like an in-universe reason for it yes exactly that's and a good that's, way to put it that and i admit i am not i'm not a huge fan of jump scares they're, they're fine right they're they are a tool and like any other Time tool you place, can overuse them or you can use them mm-hmm. well i will say that you know when i was when i was <laughs> watching this movie at uh, you know 11 o'clock at night while washing the dishes i i appreciated that i could look over and like <laughs> focus on the 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 pot full of soapy water that i was washing when when the music was indicating that a jump scare might happen um right i don't know that i would have have, have enjoyed it quite as much if all i was focusing on was the screen but uh yeah like this is jump scares are the bread and butter for the kind of like the halloween weekends at at theme parks Mm -hmm. um and i didn't have i didn't have that's all those things are basically yeah i mean it's just jump scare after jump scare and and it's funny that we kind of a lot of people and i'm talking like film snobs or nerds or whatever yeah will kind of poo-poo jump scares in films but then this other medium for lack of a Mm -hmm. better term is like that's literally all that's all it is is jump scares, and those are like some of the most fun things ever. If you just yeah. go to one of those, even if you don't expect to enjoy it, you might end up having just an absolute blast. So that was the case with Jim. Jim had no interest in going to this thing in New York, and I took him there, and he, I think he enjoyed it more than I did, but <laughs> I loved it too. That's awesome. Right. So uh, overall, Hellfest, what did you think of it? I mean, we've kind of been going back and forth yeah. and been sharing some of our specifics and not too specifics about I'll put it this way. I would probably rank it relatively high in terms of the Halloween movies that I've that I've watched. Or not the Halloween okay. movies, but like the slasher films that I've watched. But I yeah. don't know if yeah. that's because it deserves that rank or if because my, my sample size is so limited that... Uh, I understand, yes. It's something I could see myself returning to at some point as like, oh man, I want to watch a... Maybe if it's specifically for something like I want to watch a Dark Carnival kind of thing. Um, but yeah. not the old timey flavor. Like I've, I could, I could, I could come back to this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I mostly agree. I mean, I, I, I'm probably enjoyed this more than you, but this is just more in line with the types of movies that I enjoy. Sure. I think this is a perfectly passable film. I think, yeah. you know, we've talked about what it does well. There's actually a movie that came out around the same time, maybe in 2019, called Haunt, which is a lower budgeted thing. Hmm. But pretty much the same plot as this, where they're going hmm. through like a haunted house thing, and it turns out there are real killers there. And I want to say that had some twists to it too. If you if you want to watch a movie with this premise, not just like kind of like a bit of a dark carnival background, but specifically with people getting murdered in a haunted house environment, hmm. 
Haunt is probably the way to go. It's a better movie than Hellfest, but it's also a bit more disturbing and more kind of low-key and independent. This has kind of a bigger budget, a higher production value. Sure. It's more polished. It's more clean. Okay. But, yeah, I think this is a fun movie to revisit. I think it's a good movie to throw on if you're just hanging out with a friend around Halloween. I mean, yeah. We're talking about it in February. This episode's <laughs> coming out, I think, in either April or May. So it's right. not really the not really the season for Hellfest, but I think there is a season for Hellfest. And I mean, I very well may be rewatching this in, in future future Octobers. Yeah, for sure. October's gonna roll around, and I'm probably gonna think, "Oh man, I remember watching this in freaking freezing February." And uh, yeah, maybe who knows? Maybe it'll hit different in uh, in mid October. But I tell you what, I will not do is I will not watch it in the last week of September. Okay, that's yeah, when it came out, yeah, exactly. you missed right. opportunity. <laughs> We've gone full circle here. That's right. All right, uh, Brick. Which of these two films do you prefer? It's got. I mean, I've got to go with Fear and Loathing, only because. That's- Perfectly fine. Yeah, it's it's. It, it, I am so enmeshed with it in my professional life that it's it's. Uh, yeah, I've I've got to go with that. And but it's it's really an apples and oranges kind of thing, for me. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, they're very different movies. Yeah. I get it. Because I am going to say I prefer Hellfest, and the reasons for that. I mean, is Fear and Loathing a better movie? Better, you know, director having a vision type movie. Better acted. Yeah, sure, sure it is. But you know what? At the end of the day. Hellfest is just more fun for me. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a horror movie that's got some brutal kills. Never gets too uncomfortable. Like, Fear and Loathing makes you feel uncomfortable in a lot of ways, and in a lot of ways, not necessarily that are bad, but in terms of if I just want to sit down and watch a movie, Hellfest is just its more welcoming to me sure. as, as an individual, as a viewer, I guess. Sure. And, I mean, I, I, I don't love either movies, don't hate either movies. But yeah, I, I think I do just enjoy Hellfest more. Yeah, you know, you've you've got to ha- you got to be in the right mood for each one, I suppose. I think so, but I think part of why I prefer Hellfest is, at least in my eyes, maybe it's just because I like horror movies. I don't think I really have to be in the right. I think this. Hmm. I think there are more moods that are considered the right for this movie to put on, whereas like yeah. Fear and Loathing, I think in the future, and and this is not a knock against Fear and Loathing. I mean, this is true of. Movies that are amazing that I love, like Schindler's List. I can't just throw yeah. on Schindler's List any afternoon. Like I have to be in the mood for that. Hellfest, yeah. I think I could throw on more or less any time. Yeah, I, I, I think that, I think that, that makes again that's me. a lot of sense. That's that's a good way of breaking that down. Um, you're you're more likely to be in a Hellfest adjacent mood than a fear and loathing <laughs> type of mood. Yeah, yeah, I get it. All right, it. so one final question: uh, How do you think this works as a double feature? The question is, which film? Are you going to take the drugs to most enjoy? No. Right? If you are gonna, if you are gonna load up on some heinous chemicals, do you want the, okay. do you want the weird semi-historical like fever dream, quasi cultural commentary thing, or do you want the dark carnival slasher uh, eyeball yeah, there's stabbing? Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> drug potential in that movie too as well. Yeah, I'm gonna say. Not to directly answer your question, but kind of to answer mine and to kind of respond to that. <laughs> yeah. I think the um, the directness, the directness of Hellfest, Hellfest being exactly what it is, versus Fear and Loathing, which what is it? It changes its mind frequently, and it's kind of several different things at once. Mm-hmm. 
I kind of like that as like a refreshing follow-up to Fear and Loathing, a, a palate cleanser, so to speak. Yeah. As long as you're okay with the violence that's in Hellfest, which is, you know, it's violent, it's not excessive, and most people listening to this like horror movies and are okay with that kind of thing. Yeah. I think it actually makes for a very fun follow-up, even though I don't love either of these movies individually, and I don't, I guess, quite love them together. I just, I, I do kind of like that just very different second movie there. I, I, I think they complement each other in a weird way. If I had to watch them in order, I think you're absolutely right. I would, I would put, okay. I would put Hellfest after Fear and Loathing. We do get a bit of a dark carnival in Fear and Loathing with Bazooka's Circus, mm-hmm. but not, not in any you know, people. big thematic way. <laughs> Um, unless no, you no, think of, of Las Vegas and all of America as a dark carnival, which, you know, but that's... Yeah, that, I was going to say, I mean, well, you say not in a thematic way, but does the Hellfest even have themes, though? Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, but I, I like what you, I like describing that as a palate cleanser. I think that the, the directness, the kind of the more conventional entertainment value of something like Hellfest is going to come better as the second in a double bill than the than And it's, being the, it's first the, film. It's the more it's the more casual movie. It's yeah. the movie that, like... You know, if you're getting really tired and you're not following it that closely, like that, that you can kind of zoom in and out of, like you know how, like if you're washing the dishes while you're wa- right, yeah. while you're watching it or something. I mean, it's it's like it doesn't demand as much attention of yeah. your of your attention as Fear and Loathing does, yeah. which you're always trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And there's so many things, just subtle things, going on in Fear and Loathing that you mm-hmm. kind of have to watch it carefully just to see everything. Yeah, Hellfest, it is what it is. That's like the, the Fear and Loathing's release was severely disadvantaged by trying to market it as something that you that was uh, mm-hmm. just purely kind of snacky entertainment that you could drift in and drift out of, you know, broad broad spectrum appeal, right? It's absolutely not. We that. found our we found our um common ground between these two movies yeah. because Hellfest was mismarketed by being released in september <laughs> it's a completely different reason why it bombed but yeah there it's you go sort of there it's we've got we've got um those good old the marketing side to blame kind of for both these films hellfest didn't even bomb it just didn't do great it yeah. didn't do great enough to get us a second hellfest yeah yeah fingers are still crossed yeah yeah yet i want to thank brick thank you for joining us and um I, let me tell you listeners what we've got up next week when jim returns we're going to be doing another las vegas movie somehow viva las vegas starring elvis presley and ann margaret as well as death stalker the sword and sorcery exploitation argentine american film from producer roger corman so that ought to be a lot of fun that sounds great be sure to join us next week and um sure to follow us on twitter at drive-in podcast check out our patreon for early access to episodes as well as exclusive commentary tracks and we look forward to hearing from you in the future thanks for having me on absolutely